He wanted to have it when your hero explored a ruin, there was a high chance of the hero dying. Mm. We pointed out to him that a lot of players don't like this. (laughs) And he pointed out to us, well, they should realise that this is what happens. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you're listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to veteran game developer Roger Keating, who co-founded Strategic Studies Group, usually known as SSG, in 1983. Roger is known for his work on the Warlord series, as well as many digital war games. Very glad to talk to you, Roger. Um, I would like, I'm sitting here, so I'm sitting here looking at Roger Keating and his office, and he has a copy of Warlords 3 in the back, Dark Lords Rising um, in the back. Look at those. Generally, they're, generally, they're just rubbish there. So I actually put that, yeah, I'm not going to say that I put it there deliberately, but yeah, there's a few. I, I've actually completed a lot of games. And, yeah, yeah, you have. Um, well, I, I want to talk about them too. Yeah, but the thing is, I could tell you, Intimately, mm-hmm. absolutely intimately, mm-hmm. the first 10 games. Okay. Well, I hope... Well, after, yeah, after that... After you, that, it comes a... There's just a, this haziness after that. Interesting. I literally don't know how many I've done, how many I've been participated in, mm-hmm. or the order in which they occurred. Really? You, it yeah, just, you just all, lose it. You just completely wow. lose it. Well, I think it, I think for the many decades that you've done, I think it's a reasonable... Uh, I think it's a reasonable... Uh, uncertainty to have. So I let's. I I hope you can remember far back enough to tell me what it was like when you were growing up in Australia and uh, in New Zealand. In New Zealand, sorry, that's right. You, it's right. You live in Australia, but you grew up. And you tell me a little bit about that. You were you. I don't even know what kind of what kind of computers were they using. Were there was that a ZX Sinclair kind of? Were they using no, no. no. What, you, what? You, oh, you you are talking much too modern. Oh my goodness. Okay, so ZX80. What, what were, so what were what were they using in New Zealand when you were growing up that you uh, that you coded on or, or just played just, with? Just very. Very briefly about my life. Yeah. Um, I um, I got through to I went through to high school, in which case they thought I was a uh, a little bit of a, a, a slow learner hmm. because I have the I have incredible wrong. difficulty with writing. Mm-hmm. My hand my hands do not write very well, hmm. and I can't do arithmetic very well. Hmm. Just just and even now to this day, um, arithmetic or writing, uh, I, I just Things I've never managed to master in my life. Interesting. And at school in the 60s, mm-hmm. that meant that you're pretty thick. Put me with the. And oh, I thought no. that was pretty good, actually. Those guys were pretty good. <laughs> so I wasn't unhappy about my life right. or my experiences. Right. Well, that's interesting but, you know, that your arithmetic is not good because you're an incredibly good gamer and not just a programmer, but you're a very good oh. player of games. Well, you see, I spent eight years of my life as a mathematics teacher. Yet you're not good at arithmetic. No, I never have been. And, and the thing is that um, it took me a long while to realize. In fact, the reason I actually went to university was because a teacher once came and told me that I would I could never go to university. Hmm. And the one thing you never do to me is tell me I could never do something. Interesting. Well, <laughs> you, you certainly you certainly proved that person wrong. Um, uh, tell me how. So you went to university. Did you study mathematics? 
yeah, uh, I um, I studied physics and mathematics primarily, mm-hmm. and I always remember at university that I spent um, two complete lectures, hour lectures, proving that one plus one equaled two. <laughs> And that was the, the point in my life that I realized that mathematics is really, it's, it's not for everyone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Was it for um, you? you unless you actually understand one plus one is two, mm-hmm. the whole foundations of arithmetic and in many ways mathematics mm-hmm. falls apart. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> well, did you, but, you, but you found that somehow compelling, I think, because you became a mathematics oh. teacher. I, and I, this has been my, my whole life is that, um, there's so much about it which is fascinating and, and which uh, um, it, it just has to be to observe, to be discussed. Um, with my grandson at the moment, I'm trying to get him to understand gravity. Hmm. <laughs> and um, with my daughter, when she was 13, mm-hmm. she came home from a, a, her one of the regular um, times when she went out with her girlfriends to have dinner at their house. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, they, they don't talk about quantum mechanics <laughs> at dinner. Mm. And you did. And she just, she said, oh, I, I talked, I, I, I've had a love of physics. I've mm-hmm. had a love of mathematics. Um, and I find a lot of ma- mathematicians don't have a love of mathematics. They, mm-hmm. they use it. Right. Whereas when I have ever, I taught a class, I like to go to the history of mathematics, mm-hmm. like in uh, around about one AD, um, and if you subtract a year, of course, you get one BC. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, there was no zero mm-hmm. in our, our arithmetic. Mm-hmm. And what happened, how would you actually calculate something if you're not allowed to use zero? Mm-hmm. And then would take, and for that reason, in my school I was teaching at at that stage, which was in Sydney, mm-hmm. I had about 30 students every year who wanted to get into my class. And about 15 desperately trying to get out. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, well, that was your, that was, um, was that about the time when, when, uh, I mean, when, what, at what point in your life did you see a computer and think that maybe this is something uh, that you could, you could use, uh, profitably or, well, or, or unprofitably? Well, I, I started university, um, in 68 and 69 mm-hmm. and, at the end of 69, my, my brother had died. He was three years older than me. Oh, and I felt mm-hmm. that life was really not worth going on with, essentially. I mean, mm-hmm. I was really quite depressed. So mm-hmm. I took, in 1970, I went around the world. I just said, right, that's it. Mm-hmm. And basically, I had no money. So I hitchhiked around the world. I spent, um, I actually spent three months in America having a mm-hmm. delightful time. Mm-hmm. Um, I stayed with a friend of mine in Los Angeles for that three months. I hitchhiked to Alaska. And back again, because I felt you had to do something. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I went through um, um, Europe. Uh, I always remember getting to the Netherlands because they didn't speak English. Hmm. So I went through the whole day and realized I was very, very hungry. Mm-hmm. And I went into this cafe and pointed to a meal mm-hmm. and basically said, yeah, I want that. Mm-hmm. And he gave it to me. Mm-hmm. And I then pointed out, yeah, again. <laughs> and then... Uh, then I put money on the bench and he took that and gave me some change, obviously. I don't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And then he said something to me and I said, look, I'm sorry. You know, like I, I don't speak the language. And I walked out and I thought, he actually asked me, did I enjoy the meal? <laughs> <laughs> and that was when my appreciation of the fact that don't assume 
mm-hmm. that people in a foreign country don't speak English. Yeah. Um, you can always get by and that changed my life. Mm. You know, after going through, you know, through Germany and, uh, Austria. And then I went, I, hit, I went overland through Afghanistan, mm-hmm. Pakistan, India, and then had to go over Burma because you weren't allowed to go through Burma. Hmm. Uh, and then back to Australia. Um, when I got back to New Zealand, I thought that really uh, Australia was the best country I had found for, for me, at least, to think about living in. Mm-hmm. So at that stage, uh, my New Zealand life it was over, essentially. Hmm. But I went to uh, spent another two years doing university in New Zealand. Um, then I was into computers completely because they had typewriters, uh, keyboards, and you didn't have to write anything. Mm. And they were fascinating little beasts. Mm-hmm. And you could actually make them work. Mm. And not only that, but you could play games on them. Mm. So I played Colossal Cave. I, I uh, uh, I was fascinated. Uh, there was a Star Trek game. The printouts would come every turn. Huh, these it, massive printouts. Uh, the, the printouts would come. So they were. They, it was. It was. It was a computer game that you played with with paper output. Yes, absolutely. Oh, there were there were no screens. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and uh, the the PDP eight was the very first computer that I got into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were the various other ones. I, that was a mainframe, wasn't it? That PDP eight was a mainframe. I don't know. No. no? The, the simple answer is no. Okay. Um, they, they were minor computers. Uh, an IBM 360, for example, was a, was a, a mainframe. Mm-hmm. But a uh, PDP-8 was sort of like a mini, a mini, it was a, sort of like a mini computer. Okay. It, it, it really took up a lot of space. But mm-hmm. You but could have one in, yeah. you could literally have one in your office. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, which, you know, differentiated it from a mainframe where ah. you could not have a mainframe in your office okay. without okay. air conditioning and mm-hmm. right. <laughs> a lot of other things. Okay. Um, and I, I, I was really, I, I thought these things were just fantastic. And the first jo- uh, teaching job I got, I took a, I, I went, I was a trainee teacher, mm-hmm. which I thought they wouldn't take me. But then I suddenly discovered that going around the world was actually an advantage at that time. Mm-hmm. I'd never sort of thought of it being an advantage. I thought that'd actually throw me out. <laughs> but but they, they accepted me. Mm-hmm. And then I applied for 14 jobs at schools around New Zealand, mm-hmm. and every single one of them turned me down. Hmm. A, uh, this was my life. And then the uh, the head of the mathematics department at the, uh, the teaching school just told me to go along to the what was regarded as the best school in the South Island. Mm-hmm. And just talk to the head. Mm-hmm. I I went there at the appointed hour, and he didn't know why I was there. Mm-hmm. And I had the most sort of strange conversation with him because he he really wasn't too sure why I was there or anything. Mm-hmm. And then we said goodbye. And as I walked out, the head of department of mathematics at that school just said, "Don't worry, you've got the job. I'll see you in January." Hmm. Um, I arrived at that school with their new computer. <laughs> this guy had obviously done a lot of homework. He uh-huh. was very good. Uh-huh. And my job at the school was teach mathematics. That's fine. Uh-huh. We don't care what you do there. Yeah. And look after the computer. Ah, interesting. Well, no one at the school had any idea uh-huh. what to do. What kind of computer was it? It had a one megabyte drive. Uh-huh. Um, and you needed a two megabyte drive to actually get it working. Hmm. 
So we had to take that down to the university mm-hmm. to get it all formatted. Mm-hmm. And then it would go wrong and you'd have to do the whole thing again. So we mm-hmm. had to visit the university often to, to get the thing set up. Uh-huh. Then, um, it was a sort of a, I look, I, the type of computer, the exact yeah. name of the computer, I'm not it's too not sure. Of, I'm just wondering. But, yeah. But it was a sort of, it was like a PDP, a better mm-hmm. PDP eight. Okay. Okay. Um, and is that but, where, you, uh, where you started programming? I, I don't know when I started. I, I think I've always been a programmer mm-hmm. in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, um, many people have regarded the fact that I am, I suppose, uh, a little bit unusual. And uh, I, I don't know whether I'm autistic or not, <laughs> but, you know, you have, have spikes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I Fair have, enough. Like, my life, I have no problems in remembering a 250,000 line programming. Hmm. program and know what every basically know what every line is hmm. and so if you sort of mentioned to me something about a program i would go straight to that line or straight to that subroutine and and be able to sell what was going on and so hmm. i'm dealing with i'm programming at the moment with a um reprogramming the ai of a a game that um and uh, working with it and the code there because of my dating system actually goes back to the early 2000s mm-hmm. Which one is that? Um, the essentially the way C- Course on Pocket actually went through, mm-hmm. and I'm working on a, a, a game which is Battle of the Bulge mm-hmm. because I, I like it. Audie Murphy yeah. was there, so you know Hemingway oh. was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's got American, so it's actually a possible to sell. It may be possible to sell this, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, and we can sell it to the British because we can tell them that they probably won the battle anyway, so mm-hmm. <laughs> so we can lie. Okay. <laughs> Well, or you, tell me about. I mean, tell me, <clears throat> tell me about things like the, 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 there's a game that that uh, that came out very long ago, but I think is is associated with you called Reach for the Stars. The first That's Reach right. for the Stars. The original, the original game the original. for SSG. Yes. Okay. Uh, you, the very first game yeah. I did, I was actually writing a game at at, uh, at my school, um, and. I was doing a lot of things in computing. I was the president of the Apple User Group in Sydney. I was the Australasian director of the International Apple Corps, which required me to go to the States about four times a year mm-hmm. um, and oversee all Apple User Groups. Mm-hmm. I had instigated and was the vice chairman of the computer education group in our state. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And as well as that, I was a mathematics teacher, which was the thing I was paid for. Mm-hmm. So I would do things like I'd go to the headmaster who appreciated my position mm-hmm. and I'd say, could I have Friday and Monday off, please? They say, yes, but why do you want it off? And I said, look, I've got a meeting in Boston. I really have to attend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so on Thursday night, I'd hop on the aircraft, mm-hmm. fly to Boston, mm-hmm. uh, do the meeting, mm-hmm. fly back to Australia, get mm-hmm. off the, air- the aircraft on Tuesday morning, mm-hmm. catch the taxi to school, mm-hmm. teach that day <laughs> and then go home. Wow. And then collapse. Um, and I was just overworking. But this student came past me one day and said, looked at the game I was saying. and said, look, you should publish that. And I, I just thought, look, I haven't thought of that. I, that's not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. So I did. Okay. And that was the uh, game that sold about 10 copies. <laughs> but I sent a number to America. Um, and, and around there were a couple of other places around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and SSI, uh, Joel Billings at SSI looked at it and thought that it wasn't a very big game, mm-hmm. 
but he put it in with another game called Rebel Force mm-hmm. and sold that. And the fact that he had the confidence to do that mm-hmm. meant I organized a trip to America and spent three months at SSI mm-hmm. working on my second game. Mm-hmm. So I could actually see the programmers, the the, the way they actually design games. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, SSI had just started up, mm-hmm. uh, and Joel Billings and I became friends then, and we, we're still friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we, we actually worked on a game called Operation Apocalypse together. Mm-hmm. And that was a uh, still one of my fa- my favorite games that I ever started with. Describe it for us. It was four individual bat- random battles of World War Two. Mm-hmm. Um, one was a, a airdrop battle. Another one was like a highway to the right type thing where you had to get units to the other side of the board mm-hmm. and get them off the road at the okay. end, mm-hmm. whereas the other person was trying to squeeze in and stop you from getting through mm-hmm. this particular okay. valley. Right, like a market um, Okay. Yeah, meeting engagement and an, a sea landing game. So it was basically taken from European minor battles, but highly, highly um, uh, icon, iconic. It just there was no reality to this thing. It was just fun. Okay. It was, what, and, was, what was uh, what was what was sort of the impetus for it? Because obviously you decided that you were going to to do sort of military history styled games. Is there something that that you decided that would be the thing you would you would go with first. Uh, okay, you're implying that there's reason here. <laughs> uh, that's and then everything that I did, uh, everything that was carried on. No, you. Uh, I can never remember sitting down as you do now and mm-hmm. think what sort of game would sell. What sort of ga- what what's the sort of game that would would really be good out there. Mm-hmm. You, you really just sat down at a computer and started to do it, and then yeah. think, oh, yeah, I'll do this, and I've done this in the past. Mm-hmm. I, I'd done hex, I'd actually completed this hex grid code, so I had to use the hex grid code again. I see, yeah. And what could fit that? Well, look, you know, this, and the uh, Joel Billings was more interested in this type of thing, so mm-hmm. ah, done. Yeah, well, that, that was an SSI kind of thing back then, yeah, the, the hex grid, the hex grid games. Um, I made a computer for Smart and... Uh, Oh yeah, Computer Bismarck. That was so. That's a Computer Bismarck was a great game because uh, there was the whole idea of 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 hidden movement and and finding the uh, uh, finding the enemy, right? I mean, that's the, that's the classic thing that the computers can do for you that uh, it's harder to do, at, you know, sitting across the board from someone where you have, to have a screen. And I think that was John Lyon uh, who was involved in that. And I don't know what's happened to him now, uh, but I mem- remember him. The other person that I met at. Um, at SSI was Trip Hawkins. Oh, okay. He was a shareholder of, of SSI. Mm-hmm. So because what happened there, I was I stayed there for three months. And I'd arrive at work. I basically had a key to the office. Mm-hmm. I'd arrive at work about 10 o'clock mm-hmm. uh, in the morning, have lunch, mm-hmm. uh, talk to the people. And then I'd leave the office at about 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> so I, I, wasn't a, I wasn't an employee. Yeah. I just worked. <laughs> I see. And I did the seven days a week. So this is like, uh, so this was your apprenticeship at uh, SSI. Was, was, there, was there an electronic arts at that time? That Trip Hawkins was? Uh, well, uh, he, he was a shareholder. So they had basically meetings at the office at night occasionally. Mm-hmm. And I actually met him then. And then he, he, he was working at Apple as well. Uh, I, I forget the role he had at Apple, and then went away. And he, he, he's thinking about setting up a gaming company up the road at uh, San Mateo. <laughs> and uh, many years later, we actually worked with EA, uh, uh, and uh, it was very good actually because I knew 
this guy that ran it. <laughs> and and yeah. I, I've always wanted to know people in the industry, mm-hmm. and I, in my whole life I've actually sought out individuals and, and went to conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd go to a conference in America, for example, and you'd meet these people who spoke not American accents, and you suddenly find, oh, this is an Australian group. And where are you from? Oh, you're from Sydney. I, mm-hmm. Ah, and one, one of the guys here was—he lived in the same suburb as I did. But you met him in America. Yeah, because that's where you met. And right. There was no—you didn't know these people existed. There's mm-hmm. nothing in Australia that would have ever told you that, you know, another person in your suburb mm-hmm. was was actually a, a game designer. Interesting. Well, uh, tell me what what uh, so what happened after you got back from from SSI. Okay, um, I decided to carry on working, and I, I did another four games for them. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, two of the final games I, when I was actually, I actually set up SSG. But during that time, uh, being a rational person and a, um, a very rational person, I worked out that um, I'd saved a lot of money when I was a teacher and so forth. Mm-hmm. That that was fine. I could I could survive because it wasn't earning a lot of money in those mm-hmm. days, and I worked out. That if I kept going, about four years down the road, I would have no money. Hmm. Uh, essentially, I'd have to either write a, a dramatic game when the market really wasn't there to make a lot of money. Okay. So I, I had to do something different. I couldn't do what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I'd really work that out. I, I'd have to do something serious, either not write war games or not do – and if you didn't write a war game – I would have to do the whole thing myself, mm-hmm. and I'm not Richard Garriott. I'm not a, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a, a completed individual, if you like, who, who can just come up with brilliancy. Uh, I need help. Um, uh, I need people around me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so at that stage, I had uh, what Joel Billings did is he actually um, offered me a job, mm-hmm. and that was the most difficult decision I had to make in my life. Did I leave Australia? Join up with SSI, get a job with the idea if the company ever went bankrupt or I couldn't work there, mm-hmm. I would have to leave America and go back to Australia. Yeah. Um, I had had my first child then mm-hmm. and realizing you're moving the whole, the whole family would move to Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, everything could work, but it also could go very, very down the drain. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But I couldn't do anything myself. So that was when I, um, a game tester of mine in the city, uh, he had left. He was, used to run a, a bookshop there, mm-hmm. and he had left, and he was replaced by a gentleman called Ian Trout. Mm-hmm. And I actually went there and I showed Ian one of the games I was doing because I'd like mm-hmm. him to become a game tester as well. He was a keen gamer, board mm-hmm. gamer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he looked at it and told me it was shit, basically. <laughs> was honestly, you know, he, he was always honest. Mm-hmm. Um, then I went, yeah, okay, right. But that's it. I gave up and walked away. I, I kept going back to the bookshop because mm-hmm. it had a lot of material I used to yeah. like reading it. Uh-huh. Um, there was a lot of things there that I needed. Yeah. What ended then, he then went away and looked at all the games coming out of America at that time. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. said, if this is as bad as they can be, and this mm-hmm. is what's coming out of America, this guy's got something. <laughs> And when I came back and again, he had spent about a week doing this and analyzing it. And he said, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is something that could be done. Okay. We, we really could move forward. Mm-hmm. 
So he and I decided, look, we'll try it. We'll set up it and we'll do a game. So we had to decide what sort of game. Okay. That was when he, he'd loved this game, Stellar Conquest. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we actually contacted uh, metagaming. Uh, so, so that came out. I actually have that down in the down in the downstairs. It's. Uh, oh, I got it right by me. <laughs> yeah, that that game has no board, uh, as I that recall. Does. Um, the, the Avalon Hill edition does, but the original metagaming uh, edition doesn't. The, the 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 Avalon Hill version of Stellar Conquest does have a hex map. The uh, the uh, metagaming edition of of, of uh, Stellar Conquest, you just have a bunch of of squares that are the, the star systems, and you put them on the table. Uh, I, I remember that we played that a lot. That oh. was a that was a uh, that was a fast. It was a lovely game. Yeah, I was, we, we were ten years old. I'm sure we didn't have any idea how to play it correctly, uh, but we had a great time with it. So tell me about your ex- experience with Stellar Conquest. Well, We'd actually negotiate. We'd actually been talking with Metagaming uh, about doing this, mm-hmm. uh, and we'd. I proceeded. We're about six months in. I'd done a lot of program. I carried a lot of programming, getting the routines written and getting mm-hmm. everything organised. Mm-hmm. And then Metagaming was bought out, um, and we really didn't want to be associated with the way that was going. Mm-hmm. So what we did then was we then changed the. We just changed the game we were doing mm-hmm. to be. A unique game, mm-hmm. so basically all copyright elements were removed completely, right. with the exception that we had 54 stars and they had 54 stars. <laughs> but that was the only element that we kept in the game that okay. would have been remotely alike. Okay. And, and um, tell me about uh, tell me about tell me about because this is you're talking about Reach for the Stars. That's Reach for the Stars. Yeah. Yes. So tell me about Reach for the Stars. Like what 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 gave you uh, when you decided, okay, well, because you have this game design, I can't, I, I, I don't remember the gentleman's name who designed it. Unfortunately, I, I had, uh, but you had, you had that design for metagaming, and then you decided we can't go with this uh, for legal kind of copyright reasons. How did you, did you and Ian change it? Did Ian have ideas? Ian was the main designer, <laughs> and he was a, um, he to him everything was a game. To him, um, the Tax Act. Is a game <laughs> to him. Um, uh, he used to do conveyancing for all our friends mm-hmm. if they were solding sold a house mm-hmm. because he, he loved the, uh, the you could do conveyancing as long as you didn't charge for it. If you ever you're, if they could he could do anything for nothing, mm-hmm. but he could never charge a dollar because hmm. that would make him in violation of, of legal complications within the the, the city. Okay. Uh, and uh, he could be you know, classified as, well, he doesn't have the qualifications to do this. He didn't have the qualifications to do anything, basically. <laughs> well, he was, was he, did he, he worked at a bookshop, is that right? Well, it, I, the reason he worked at a book, he decided early on in life that he wanted to retire at 30. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was his goal in life, his, his one ambition, mm-hmm. retire at 30. Mm-hmm. So he got to 30, and he retired. <laughs> okay. He had achieved his goal in life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then what he found is his friends didn't want to play games with him <laughs> because they were working. Right. Yeah. And this person, uh, they, this bookshop got into a lot of financial difficulty for, uh, for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. And they actually said to him that he could, if he had it for a three-year period and he got rid of all the financial difficulties, mm-hmm. he could have, I think, it was a, I think it was a third of the bookshop. Okay. would be his. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, He's not doing anything. He's bored out of his brain. Mm-hmm. This was a challenge, mm-hmm. so he took it. Yeah, and that's how I met him at the bookshop. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, with me, 
this was a challenge. It, it, it had not, it, he'd never, he never actually ever did things for money per se. Mm-hmm. It was just a game. Everything was a game to him. Yeah. And you had, you know, you, you tried to win mm-hmm. or basically he, lo- he loved winning. Um, so how did he, uh, how did he win in the design of Stellar Conquest? What did he do with it? He wanted to, he wanted to take a, a what he had to learn is that, is that the computer uh, technology at that stage was far inferior to any board environment. So the board environment, the board games mm-hmm. were phenomenal. Mm-hmm. But the um, to, but the computer you had to to work with it. Whereas what I knew is I knew the computer. Mm-hmm. I, I I almost unless I was phenomenally lucky, I could never beat him at a board game. Mm-hmm. So his logic there there ran to the point that. Or he could he could win almost any board game. Ipso facto, if he played me at a computer game, he would win. Mm-hmm. He almost never beat me at a computer game, <laughs> and this this used to frustrate the hell out mm-hmm. of him. Yeah, just amazingly. Well, tell me the, the story. Point. You told me a story <clears throat> once by by email where uh, uh, he couldn't accept that fact, so he had to have some special conditions made so that. Uh, well, he believed that I was actually I was actually studying at home. I, I studied every single game at home. He he must have had a funny view, view of my life. <laughs> he thought I studied everything at home for the sole purpose of beating him. Okay. So yes, he actually got one of our employees once to to work out this game or this scenario for a mm-hmm. game, so that neither one of us could ever possibly have seen this. Mm-hmm. And then we were going to play this. It was going to be in our magazine at that stage, which was Run Five that we were publishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everything was set up. None of you know neither one of us could back out. Mm-hmm. And Gregor Whitey was brought in there to document the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it was a forty-turn game, and he had to resign on turn twenty-nine. Mm-hmm. And he never ever tried. He never ever again. Never questioned it. Never doubted. Never he could beat it at computer games. No. Uh, he just gave up. The, yeah. the, you, board games, yeah. one side. Computer games, the other. And if it came down to asking someone's opinion about computer games, take my opinion. Don't. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's good that you accept, you established who, who everybody's expertise uh, early on. Early, early on, it was different. Oh. Okay. There was a lot of fighting there. Okay. Um, well, tell me about and, uh, tell me about tell me about Gregor. How did Gregor get involved? Okay, Ian and I were two particular individuals. Many people think, and in fact, I've been regarded as you know when I've walked into places as Keating Trout. Mm-hmm. Two people together, mm-hmm. an amazing pair. Mm-hmm. But we used to argue phenomenally about games, about mm-hmm. the way things were going to be, mm-hmm. design elements, bits and pieces within mm-hmm. it, and we were very strong in our, our, our opinions. Um, so Ian sort of felt, as he would often do, he, he would analyze the situation and just say, look, a third party is needed. Mm-hmm. That way you've got three votes. Three mm-hmm. votes is all you need. No more. Don't ever have a fourth vote or mm-hmm. a fifth. Mm-hmm. Three. So we, we got a friend of his in, and he became uh, the, the third vote. Okay. And he was actually an ex-teacher. Because mm-hmm. we were both ex-teachers, mm-hmm. and we felt that ex-teachers will always work and that strong. Mm-hmm. That this this was obviously going to be a winning condition. Mm-hmm. That was a year that I'd rather forget about. Mm-hmm. No, we we sacked him, <laughs> and then we thought, let's get someone competent, mm-hmm. <laughs> and don't worry about the fact that he's a friend, and don't worry about the fact that he's a teacher. Okay, and we knew this person called Gregor Wiley, 
uh, he was a very competent gamer, a uh, very strong individual, uh, and very intelligent. Uh, he had all the attributes, if you like, to, to step into a position and to, to really, and he also wanted to try something new. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we brought him in to, on a sort of a six month trial. And he, after six months, became that third vote. And, and he is still with me today. Um, he is still the person that keeps SSG alive. Um, and except we're two votes now, but I can, (laughs) there's very few disputes between the two of us. Well, that's good to Um, hear. Well, we should say, we should mention that unfortunately, uh, for those who are listening to the podcast who don't know, uh, uh, Ian Trout died, unfortunately, when in 2000 and, 11, I think. 2011. 11, yeah, so he was, he definitely died, uh, too young. I think he was only in his 60s. Um, so that's, uh, uh, a shame, but, um, uh, he really did. He, you and he designed some amazing games, uh, that I'd like to talk about that, uh, you know, I played. You have, like, <clears throat> I'm looking right now so for the listeners who can't obviously see this. I'm looking over, uh, Roger's right shoulder, his copy of Carriers of War 2. I'd like to talk about the original Carriers of War first because that was uh, an amazing game. But then above that, he has Warlords 3. I can't, uh, Carriers of War came out before Warlords. I know that because. Oh, yeah. Uh, Carriers of War was the second game. So I remember yeah. it absolutely. Oh, tell uh, me about it. Then. For Let's hear about it. Okay. Carriers of War. At the end of, of Reach of the Stars, look, it did phenomenally well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we actually, as a company, made so much money uh, with that game mm-hmm. that we really didn't know what to do with it, so we spent it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even know what we spent it on. Mm-hmm. I, it was the early days where oh, we bought new gear. We knew, bought, we bought a Lisa. Oh, the a, best, an Apple Lisa. Uh, uh, best computer the world has ever produced and very few people ever know about it. Yeah. I, I remember the Lisa. Yeah. Oh, we, we did everything on the Lisa. Hmm. Um, and, uh, the, uh, Those were expensive uh, uh, the other Lisa dumped and rubbish dumps because no one would buy them, but <laughs> <laughs> we used theirs. Okay. Um, and, uh, the next game we moved on to Ian decided himself one night, <laughs> but he was going to design the whole thing mm-hmm. and essentially tell me how to do it. Okay. Um, about a month later, he decided that he would work with me <laughs> to, to get this game finished. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, I got all the, I'd had all these design documents I had to read and to go through. And he wanted to have a game. He knew at that stage he had a very, very clear idea of how I wrote AI and how that could be integrated within the system. Okay. And that's uh, many people, th- and I've I found it particularly at this stage, they would write a game, mm-hmm. then they would do AI. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you just write the game so two people can play it, and then you write the AI so the person that the AI will inter- inter- right. interfere with the human, mm-hmm. and the human just does it. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I've always written, a game. This goes right back to the to the mid seventies when I've written games. Mm-hmm. You do that work at the very very beginning, mm-hmm. so that the human and the AI are written from the very start, uh, and and they you never def, you never bring them apart. Right. You're writing the game design with the AI. That's the, the game. Absolutely. The game design is part and parcel of the AI. You 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 don't try to do something that you don't know whether the AI is going to to do or not. 
that, that makes sense. That's, I'll just say that that for, for people listening, that's a, that's a, that may be the secret sauce that made SSG games so good in single player because uh, the AI, I, I had a devil of a time beating the original carries or it was just, it seemed impossible. It seemed like I was uh, completely at the mercy of this, uh, of this AI that knew where I was and could always put, put their, uh, Air, aircraft to concentrate them. Air, <coughs> carries of Wars, obviously, it, it, the, the game was about the Solomon's uh, Island uh, battles and the, the campaign there, and, and it was one of the, it was the first game that, uh, I mean, there were there were other games that, uh, before that, but they didn't do graphics in searching that way. I think um, there was, a, Avalon Hill had some games, they had Midway, I think it was called the Midway Campaign, uh, but that was a series of sort of X's and O's and asterisks, and I think Midway Island was an asterisk, and and, and you had little letter, capital letters would come uh, out from various directions, you know, and then the, the capital letters would stand for different fleets, and it was a very sort of abstract. It was an abstraction based on what I think TRS-80 could do at the time, but uh, but Carriers of War was a complete, in my mind, battle. You could see the pictures of the planes, you could see the the as the um, as the aircraft attacked the ships, you would see the silhouette of the ship. It was just a uh, it was just incredible, but I could never beat it. Uh, so, <laughs> so there's no there's no advantage to the AI. This is the thing that really surprises me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't have cheating. I mean, actually, I won't say I'd never have cheating code because um, I described to someone once is when you do the AI for something like Carriers at War, mm-hmm. you've got to imagine the AI. It's there's a hex above your head, mm-hmm. and the AI will jump up, spin round, see mm-hmm. everything, mm-hmm. and then jump down. That's how the AI plays the game. Hmm. A human player will be completely above the board, mm-hmm. looking down, mm-hmm. and can look at all the tactical and strategical information that they have mm-hmm. and to formulate a plan. Mm-hmm. The AI does not formulate a plan. Hmm. It carries out actions based on information and algorithms that you have provided it. Yeah. Uh, there essentially is... Uh, um, there's. There, there really is very little you can do, and this is a frustration as a of an AI designer. Mm-hmm. You, you have to, and in Carriers of War, for example, we found that we could not make the AI win or even play a good game. Mm-hmm. So it was really Ian that came up with the idea of giving the AI assistance, and this is when we came up with the uh, war card philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so the, he would actually enter in all the cards, which would tell the computer how to behave. So there were scripts, in a sense. Uh, yes. And we actually published the Carriers at War construction kit eventually. Mm-hmm. And you could actually create your own AI mm-hmm. um, because we felt that people out there would just want ah, – this would be something that, uh, that – don't ever use the argument that everyone would. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's it. <laughs> we just, I mean, we did it. Right. Why would people not want to do this? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been asked, uh, like in, in Warlords, we left all the ability to do whatever you wanted to do in there, even in, in course on pocket and those sort of games. Mm-hmm. You can write your own AI. Right. And what we found is the number of people in the world mm-hmm. that would write their own AI um, was down to, uh, it's, it's just down to single figures right. in all the sales we ever made. It's just not. It just doesn't happen. Right. But but Ian, because he knew the card of the wall card system so well, um, he could actually make the Japanese behave 
the AI as a Japanese pl- uh, player at that time would actually behave, mm-hmm. and the American forces would behave very much as the American forces. So they, the AI, even though the AI was pretty thick with the war card system on top of it, mm-hmm. it beca- that was where the intelligence really was. Yeah, but you didn't. But it didn't. But the AI didn't simply know where my carriers were and go attack them. No. Yeah. No. You, you, but that, to do that—that's what it seems that like would be a fatal mistake. Mm-hmm. Because one thing I've learned is that once you know what the how the AI reacts, you can always kill the AI. Mm-hmm. You place your force in a way where it will react in a certain way, mm-hmm. and playing that scenario, you will always do that, right. and you will always win. Right. Right. Because it, it will then send its forces this way when you've got sure. another group around here that it won't actually pick up. Right. <laughs> yeah. The deterministic <laughs> AI like that doesn't work. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> whatever. I mean, the, the, the system that you guys came up with was uh, lasted me for, you know, I don't know, hundreds of hours in that game. Uh, it was really fantastic. What was the next thing you guys did after uh, Carriers well, of War? I'd just like to step back to Reach yep. the Stars. Just oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, you, you do the AI and you test it thoroughly. And believe me, the Reach of the Stars AI was tested to, um, I would almost say to myself at least, an infinite extent. Mm-hmm. Then I got a phone call from a gentleman from Melbourne who just said, well, you can always beat it. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, well, you know, no, you can't. He said, oh, no, his, his tactics will beat it every single time without, without a problem. And I, yeah, and I, again, don't do, ever do this. No, you can't do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What you do is do nothing. Save every, every piece of income that you've got. Mm-hmm. Just put it in the bank mm-hmm. and don't do anything. And wait for a hundred turns to go past. Um, after a hundred turns, I'd actually said if you put things in the bank, you'd get a little bit of interest. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'd done, I'd also put into the game was if the player is really doing badly, mm-hmm. he hasn't developed his planet, you know, like he's only got, he's only sort of just starting out, mm-hmm. don't touch him. I'd actually told the AI, contrary to what people think about AI designers, I'd actually told the, told the AI, don't, don't actually hit the person that's coming so far in the last place. Mm-hmm. Look for the person that's coming first. Now the other AI players will be developing, hit mm-hmm. them. I see. So this person then had so, because of the small interest, a small interest rate that I put in the game, he had so much money coming out every turn, mm-hmm. he could actually just build a planet-sized uh, uh, fleet mm-hmm. of ships mm-hmm. each turn and send them out and just clobber every single planet in the system mm-hmm. and just wipe the computer player completely. The computer player had no idea where this was coming from. <laughs> So, so your your catch up mechanic actually worked much too well. Ah, oh, well, that's right. As soon as the bank your your bank limit got to a certain point, it just checked your bank limit every turn. As soon as your bank limit was a certain point, it just completely it, it declared peace on every other AI player uh-huh. and just crushed you. Oh, that's the patch you wrote. Oh, that was right. Oh, yeah. I wasn't going to allow any person <laughs> ever ever to do that. I I was completely caught off guard. Oh, and that, that was a very good point because as an AI designer, you you have to know the limitations of what you're doing and observe every single one of them. Mm-hmm. So at a meeting with uh, in an AI meeting that we'd have or just how things were going to be done, 
uh, within a game system, um, Ian would say, look, you know, if I even had a thousand gold, and I said, yeah, what if you had a million? Mm-hmm. And he'd just say, no, no, you can't get a million. I said, yeah, let's say you can get a million gold. Mm-hmm. This would then ruin the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, but you couldn't get a million. <laughs> Okay, I, I I never accepted a limit from that point on. Mm-hmm. You you design you design the thing so that you imagine the player is going to have you know all of these things, right? And make sure you've covered it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, don't ever just think the game is going to be played like two normal human players would play it. Um, um, the you know you you have to take into account every single thing. Sure. Now, um. Carriers of War was successful beyond what we ever imagined. Mm-hmm. I, I um, one particular point I should point out though, uh, this really impressed me with Ian, is that I came in once and I said I was having a lot of difficulty with a plane. Uh, planes were coming into a task force, um, and you had certain makeups in the squadrons and the the types of planes that were coming in, and I had no idea how to write the AI on the attack. Structure. How how would this how would the squadron split up? Mm-hmm. How would you organise your fighters? How would you organise the dive bombers, torpedo bombers? What what targets would you pick? He actually sat down in front of me, and within 30 minutes, he wrote an A4 page, and he says, "There, that's how to do it." And he was about 95% correct. I, he had actually written pseudocode. Hmm. That was the first time I realised he was learning. <laughs> You know, it, it got to the point where he could actually tell me in a way I could actually go home and program it. Interesting. Did you, and, is, and was that a, that, a, that a, a pattern that continued? It, it continued through the, through the whole point. The, now, at the end of that, we were, or particularly Ian, was so impressed with the fact that he had chosen a game, he had chosen a game, and... It had worked. I mean, everything. Had, so, so he has going. To, he was going to choose the next game because that way we could continue the success, which we were, you know, guaranteed mm. in this particular venture. So, he decided an air war over Europe was one that he really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. His ultimate objective was to do an American Civil War game, but we'll get back to that. Okay. Uh, a complete uh, covering everything. Yeah. But um, so this Europe ablaze was the name of the game. We. we 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 worked on it thoroughly. Uh, it was carried out to Ian's instructions. Everything worked, mm-hmm. and we put it out. Didn't go as well. Mm-hmm. It, it really was. I think the only word that I can ever describe the 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 thing about Europe Blaze was it was a failure. Mm-hmm. It described the air war over Europe completely. It was boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, you fly a few missions, then you have to, after seven missions, you'd have to stop to replace all the planes you'd lost. Yeah. Uh, it, I, it, it taught me a huge amount about the air war, you know, how as a pilot you could sabotage your plane and have to land in Sweden or Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> because a, a pilot in England, for example, or, you know, people in England were landing, getting off the plane and refusing to fly again. Mm-hmm. So the English would have to decide, well, you know, they were going to originally court-martial these people. Mm-hmm. Then they decided, look, we'll just take them to basically a health camp mm-hmm. and, you know, get the get them to realise all the problems that they have, mm-hmm. uh, basically a PTSD-type environment, and get them out of the, the you know, their, their problem areas 
and they could then put them back into the Air Force mm. and, and back into action. But they had so many people who were just, it was just traumatized by this complete event over Europe. Mm-hmm. And the, the uh, reading through the accounts, the, the types of things that happened in those days, um, you know, you just, uh, it, 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 like at today, actually, when you're talking to me, it's Anzac Day here where we celebrate um, the, the soldiers of the past, um, the, all those people who have, um, have fought for the country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's always been fascinating to me reading about history but also learning all the sides of it. I, I, I remember once I was thinking about Russia and then I realized it was like a black hole. I, I knew nothing that happened there. Mm-hmm. And that was just an answer. Okay, go and learn. Mm-hmm. What part did Russia play in World War II? It played a big part. Sure did. <laughs> same, same with China. You know, mm-hmm. what part did China play in World War II? And mm-hmm. you, you can suddenly realize, you can think, I, I, Ian was fantastic. For this, his memory, his knowledge of history, uh, he, he you could just sit down at a meal and and just they were just magnificent. Uh, he he taught me so much about uh, about the the historical side of everything. So at the end of uh, uh, Europe Blaze, SSG almost ceased to exist. We'd we were so used to the idea that we could buy any computer we ever wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he had gone for a cruise mm-hmm. uh, while we were developing our next game, which was the grand scale American Civil War game that he mm-hmm. always wanted. Okay. His, his, his one desire in life mm-hmm. was to do this. Uh, don't, don't look at, don't look for it in SSG. Um, mm-hmm. So he came back from the cruise and I handed him a sheet of paper, which was, let's terminate this game. Let's do a new game mm-hmm. before we go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And we'll, you know, get it out. And he read through the the, the paper that I'd given him, um, which was to do a tactical war game in uh, a ground-based game, World War Two based. Mm-hmm. And he just he just looked me straight in the eye and just said, "I'll see you tomorrow morning, my place, ten o'clock." Mm-hmm. So, yep, yeah, as a programmer, that's the answer you want. Yeah. He wasn't going to give me an answer. It wasn't going to be yes or no. There was no yes or no. Just yep. Yeah. Let's talk mm-hmm. about this, but not now. Let me think. Okay. So I came the next day, and he handed me over this quite substantially bigger document. <laughs> <laughs> Than the one page you'd given him. Oh, it, he, he, could, he could produce documentation. And uh, his game, the human player, in my game, the human player was intimately involved. In his game, the human player had no part. You, you just ordered your units to do things mm-hmm. and then watched what they did. Oh. And you had no ability to move a unit. You had to say, move. And if it didn't move correctly, that, that I, I was weary about this. I really, but then you have to, you get to a point and this had to be done very, very quickly. And it was basically within a, uh, within a two day period, we had to commit ourselves to this game. Mm-hmm. Um, that game was completed and ready for sale 14 weeks later. Wow. Sleep during that period was an optional extra. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I remember one day I was with Ian and he suddenly said, ah, 
the, the we're having lunch. Uh, the, the name of the game has to be at the printer uh, by two o'clock. We <laughs> <laughs> hadn't even thought. So we had a list of names, mm-hmm. and at the end of two hours, the name at the top of the list was the name that we're going with, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we decided on Battlefront. Okay. And um, because again, we were producing the we were actually producing the game as well as programming it, doing the discs, mm-hmm. uh, duplicating the disc, yep. doing everything to get yeah. this game done. And um, as I said, the hardest I have ever worked, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, that everything in that 14-week period was designed, everything was towards the end of yeah. this game, which was really, I mean, I, I look at it and think there was so much in a sense that didn't go correctly, but that was because it just had to be finished. Yeah. And it worked. That game sold. It, mm-hmm. it rescued SSG. Wow. Did, did, and, uh, did, was that a surprise to you, given how short a time it, you spent on it? Okay. When I put out... When I put out Europe Ablaze, we just expected it to be a success. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. After that point, I realized that if I felt really positive about a game and you put it out, yeah, roll a dice. Mm-hmm. You know, one, two, three, yeah, it works. Four, five, six, now it fails. Mm-hmm. I, there is, you cannot determine the, the feelings, the market, the, the, the way people will react. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that really tells you as a gamer, is this going to work yeah. or not? Okay. Um, wow. Games, games that I put out, and I think, <laughs> well, we, we worked on it. It's okay. Mm-hmm. And you put it out, people come and say, that was magnificent. What was magnificent about it? And I'll, I'll also say this, and I'll, there was one game at SSG that I actually took myself. This was a bit later. I took myself out of because I didn't like the design. And I just, I just told Gregor and Ian, I'll go away and do my own game. And at the end of this, we'll have two games. Mm-hmm. That's actually better. And which one game was that? I don't know now. <laughs> <laughs> or at least I'm not going to tell you. Okay. I've never played that game. The game that, that, is, that you weren't involved in? I just, I just said, no, the design of that game is wrong. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, that was the only game, only game, only single game. And I had the ability to pull myself out of it. But it was the only game in SSG that I never, ever, I didn't approve of. I didn't like the way they did it. Didn't like the way it was programmed. But who it was pro- programmed. Who programmed? Okay. Who programmed? Uh, I had, we, had, we, had, we had about, at that stage, about five programmers. Oh, okay. So um, we had four of the programmers working on that, pro, on that game. Mm-hmm. And then I was individual. I was out on my own. I see. Okay. Um, and, and just writing what I wanted to write. It gave me a chance to, it also gave me a chance to write a game that I wanted to do. And I think at that stage, uh, I won't actually say the game because that puts a timeline limit on it. Okay. Uh, but yes, uh, but there were games, there was one game that I would have loved to have worked on and, and didn't. And that was uh, Gold of the Americas. Mm-hmm. Um, I really felt that Gold of the Americas was one of the, uh, one of the great games that SSG did, mm-hmm. but again, it never, uh, it never really got recognition um, for the type of game that it was. What did you like about World of the Americas? I loved the humour. Um, the uh, the well, as you are, you are one of four countries in Europe: uh, France, uh, Spain, Portugal, or um, uh, or England, <laughs> and you are trying to colonise the New World. Mm-hmm. And the new world has to be basically exploited 
uh, explored, exploited, uh, developed. And then the new world will occasionally want to be its own boss. I don't, this might ring a bell. <laughs> and, and as a European power, that's the last thing you want. Mm-hmm. So you've got to try to keep these, keep the, the, the new world in order mm-hmm. so you can exploit it more. Uh, but don't let them go to, don't exploit it so much that they then to become isolationist and just just declare themselves independent. I see. So it, it was a it was a beautifully balanced game. So for example, and the thing that I, I actually liked about it, um, do you get involved in slavery or do you not? That's a um, that's a that's a very difficult topic to uh, introduce into a game. Yeah. Well, I thought if you did, it made things so much easier. Because then, if you brought them into a into a colony, you could get so much more out of the colony mm-hmm. without upsetting the people who ran the colony. Mm-hmm. But if you didn't use them, mm-hmm. then you had to t- get them from the colony itself, and they could become independent. I see. And you had all these balances within the game. Mm-hmm. And what we were trying to do, not make a statement about slavery, but to mm-hmm. say – Look at why slavery was introduced. Look at what these people were doing. They saw benefits by just exploiting Afri- Africans, putting them in there, and will will you know make them do the work, mm-hmm. and therefore everyone else will be reasonably happy. Well, so that's sort of uh, a, that's sort of a political economic theory, then, right? I mean, because that's a, that's that's your that's your uh, postulate on, on how things on how things work. So there's so I'm a very strong advocate of the UBI, <laughs> Universal oh, Basic Income. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah. well, I that's... have, I want to see Star Trek in reality. <laughs> so, including the Klingons. Ah, uh, well, yeah. I, I want game designers to be able to sort of say, like, get five game designers, we'll get a get a property, uh-huh. we can all now rent it because we can afford it. Right. <laughs> just right. just sit there and make a game for eighteen months. Yeah. Well, I, I mean that's. I think that's what uh, I think that's what a lot of uh, you know younger designers are doing, right? I mean, they're they're sort of not I don't know about renting a property, but they have game you know collectives and people are are uh, sort of working together and uh, I, that's that's an interesting thing. I mean, let's talk about you guys, you three guys. I mean, that was you and and Gregor and Ian worked together for how many years? Uh, well, it's basically from 85 through to 2011, the, the three of us yeah. were together. Wow. And man. I should point out that the getting towards 2011, mm-hmm. there was one time when Gregor went round to um, Philippa's home. Uh, that, that was his wife. Mm-hmm. And she just complained to him saying she was trying to get Ian to go to hospital and he just refused point blank to go as mm-hmm. Ian would do. He would yeah. often take a position and you just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And and um, Gregor just looked at Philip and just said, "Look, I'll deal with it." Mm-hmm. And he just walked over to Ian and said, "Look, you either go to hospital or call Roger." <laughs> <laughs> and and Ian just looked at Gregor and then said, "Okay." Mm-hmm. It, and Philip Philip just said, "What just happened here?" <laughs> it, look, there are three votes. <laughs> right. <laughs> if two people vote, mm-hmm. you have to accept it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no argument. Right. And Ian was one who believed when a rule went into place, mm-hmm. you, you obey that rule. Right. Well, it's 25 <laughs> then, years that you guys were together. I guess you, that rule became yeah. quite, quite well established. It also was used 
often. <laughs> really? Like I would go around to Gregor's and explain to him how this thing was really, you know, oh, this was just a dynamite thing. We had mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, to try and get Gregor on side before I saw Ian. Yeah. And Ian would be right. He realized that tactic as well. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Gregor would be getting phone calls from both of us. So, but the meeting's on 10 o'clock. <laughs> Make sure you're thinking this way. Got it. Well, how many votes did you have on Warlords? Ah, uh, okay. How Warlords came about? That was actually be- really before Gregor. It, it it almost was about the same time as Gregor, but it was before mm-hmm. Gregor. Okay. Uh, it was it was very early on, mm-hmm. and we got this game from a chap in Melbourne called Steve uh, Steve Faulkner, mm-hmm. whom we didn't know. I mean, he mm-hmm. obviously uh, looked uh, look. He wanted to see if we would publish it, inter- uh, be interested. Mm-hmm. So Ian looked at the game. I looked at the programming. That was the two, you know, okay. then we're going to come back the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I came back and Ian just said he didn't like it, didn't have any tanks. <laughs> <laughs> I went away. I had examined the programming and there was a situation where the uh, an army was trying to get to an island mm-hmm. and it couldn't. So I sent back a command. And that command was the I am there command. Hmm. So his I can't make it and the I am there, mm-hmm. which you can do in C++ mm-hmm. or C in those days, mm-hmm. was the same. Mm-hmm. So the computer would then, or the program would then say, oh, I'm there. Just shift the guy there. Ah, interesting. <laughs> you can't really sell a game like that. Mm-hmm. So I said the programming really wasn't up to it. Okay. So we, we both decided we wouldn't publish it, mm-hmm. and um, and Ian gave the disc to his son, Alex. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he was about eight years old at that stage. Mm-hmm. Alex, came, uh, um, Alex came back about two days later and said, bloody fantastic game. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Ian sort of said, well, look, you know, a, a dragon is like a flying tank. <laughs> <laughs> and I look at the program and said, look, I, I could – I could rewrite the mechanics. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I could I could do a movement mechanics. There. You know, I could just rewrite the whole the whole thing in yeah. you know a few months. Okay. And yeah, let, let's give Steve a call. <laughs> <laughs> so I gave Steve a call and said, "Yeah, look, we're willing to give this one a go." Yeah. So an eight year old, an eight year old was responsible for for, uh, for I, saving yeah. warlords. He's a bit older than eight year old now. He's mm-hmm. uh, he's a programmer and gets a lot of money. <laughs> but good. he's a very good programmer. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, Steve was was happy to come on board, and he stayed with us for it was close on, not quite, but close on twenty years. Mm-hmm. Um, and his programming went from um, that style mm-hmm. to the point where I regard him as a genius programmer. At the end, he mm-hmm. he, he really he uh, he exceeded my abilities, mm-hmm. and we wrote I think about five games together. Mm-hmm. They were the most they were the best games of my life. Mm. They were so easy to do. He was uh, he would look after all the RPG aspects. Mm-hmm. I would look all, after all the mechanical aspects, mm-hmm. the AI aspects. Yeah. I did all the AI. I did all the mechanics. And I know one day he rang up and said, said that he was looking at my movement code. Uh-huh. And it was about it was about four thousand lines of code that uh-huh. you know just organized movement. Yeah. And he said it had one comment at the top, which was. This moves things around. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit hard to understand under mm-hmm. that. <laughs> it was just this code, yeah. and it wasn't easy. Yeah. 
And I sort of pointed out that, well, no one ever read it. I was the only one. Right. And I knew what it did. Mm -hmm. Why should I comment it? Yeah. And I don't, uh, it, when I used, I have actually in the last few years uh, carried out a bit of teaching, uh, uh, teaching game programming. Mm -hmm. I certainly don't use that argument now. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you comment everything. Doesn't quite fly. Yeah. I guess. Uh, so, what, tell me the, which games did you did you and Steve Faulkner write together that you enjoyed so much? All the Warlords ones All up Warlords. to um, up to the end of Warlords Three. Mm -hmm. That is, we Warlords Three, Dark Lords Rising. Yeah. So that would be Warlords, Warlords 2, Warlords 2 Deluxe, mm -hmm. um, Warlords 3, um, Reign of Heroes, Dark Lords Rising. Mm -hmm. So they, they it, when we get into to Reign of Heroes and Dark Lords Rising, the AI was really, it was very good, in mm -hmm. my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it I, was. Oh, I, I, just, from me. I just enjoyed it. I was doing things like you would, the AI was fine, but it would all be the same. Mm -hmm. So there were per, the, um, Dan Bunton went and, and when he was uh, he was Dan Bunton mm -hmm. uh, before uh, Danny Bunton Berry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He when I met him, he was the one person I found I had a strong affinity. Him, he and Mark Baldwin, mm -hmm. strong affinity in the way we would talk about AI. Mm -hmm. And uh, he tried to describe a, a, a rugby uh, game in America mm -hmm. where. As you played, it would learn how you played, mm -hmm. and then it would react to that. Mm. And and Walnuts, what I did is I actually had these um, diplomatic characters mm -hmm. define certain AI modules, and the AI would choose one of these modules for each person. Mm -hmm. So one was a you know I'm really quite a peaceful person. I want to develop. I want to make money. Mm -hmm. So it really wouldn't ready to declare war on you, you know, it's quite, unless you declare war, you know, you, you start to affect it. It would be, you know, affect its economy. It would get angry at you. Okay. Another player, they just wanted to fight. <laughs> Another player just wanted to burn things down. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he just wanted to raise the map. Mm -hmm. uh, and that there are, there are about, I think there are about 12 of these characters. So I had to play it and identify the characters that were being played by the AI. Uh -huh. And that was when you suddenly, you know, got that feeling that, yes, I can actually see, you know, which, you know, which things this AI is actually doing, how right. it's you, behaving. You, you figured out its personality. It was like a, it was like a personality you were, player. You were trying to. Uh, and, I, like, for me, that was very difficult to see how each, because they could actually, um, for example, there was one player who was, always very mean, uh, very aggressive. Mm -hmm. So if that player was ever killed, that player often got killed. Mm -hmm. But if he got killed, it would take note of the fact that that player didn't exist anymore. So one of the other players would pick it up. Oh, okay. So you'd throw his personality away and take that personality. Hmm. So you're, when you've got one player, you're always, he was always going to be aggressive towards you. Okay. There was never going to be a nice... <laughs> A nice AI, but you could also give gold to the AI to calm them down. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, the reason I did that was almost no player would ever give gold to the AI. And no one, I, when, when I used to play with other people mm -hmm. um, and the AIs would say it would be him, myself, that player, mm -hmm. and, you know, six other AI players. Yeah. That person would not give any gold to any AI player. 
So I'd look at the AI closer to them and I'd give that player gold. Mm. <laughs> I, I like giving, yeah. uh, in fact, I actually knew how much gold to give them. Right. Well, that's a little <laughs> bit of an advantage. But you're saying that the people did, somehow constitutionally did not want to uh, give money to the, to the AI. No. Why would you give anything to an AI player? <laughs> and uh, this is a human, this is a human, I mean, writing AI is a lot like psychology. He, uh, a human player doesn't deal with an AI. He just wants to crush it, basically, um, and work out its weaknesses. And mm -hmm. the other thing is, and Ian and I sort of worked this out one day, about uh, five positive things have to happen to you to every one positive thing that the computer has happened to it. Hmm. Otherwise, in, in the computer. Yeah. 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 Otherwise, the computer is cheating. <laughs> and this got to the stage where in the um, in a war game like Course on Pocket and, and its sequels, yeah. I was accused of rigorously cheating in that game in that game. And so what I did was every dice roll that was rolled mm -hmm. was put into a table mm -hmm. and then you could actually see it. And I actually I think ran an average of all the dice rolls for you so you mm -hmm. didn't have to add them up. Yeah. So I didn't actually have to add them up. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it would actually show you that the, you know, its dice rolls were equal to sort of your dice rolls. It was, yeah, I think it's, in, no, it's, in, it's into Nipper, uh, across of Nipper, I think. Uh, well, yeah. it's, all, oh, that's all, and, it's all built in there, yeah. We see, Greg, we got a complaint one day and it said, look, yes, we understand that, but the computer is cheating on the critical dice rolls. <laughs> <laughs> and Greg had to explain to this person, look, if we could work out the critical dice rolls, right. we wouldn't be making games. <laughs> We've been making millions of dollars yeah. working for big business. Right. Maybe the stock market. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the, the idea that individuals who are playing the game think mm -hmm. that you can do. Yeah. It's just not there. Well, it's all, it's all, uh, you know, that's the, that's the part of, of, of gaming against the computer that, uh, you can't reproduce that human psychology, right? You, you're just, you're, the, the person is always going to think, uh, there's some, there, 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 it's a black box and it's got nefarious intent. Uh, yes. Yeah. It, it's, so. And, uh, the other thing I found too is that, you know, you, people don't imagine that a human player has ever written this. Mm -hmm. Um, there seems to be a, there's a, uh, it's sort of like a disjoint nature between the, what the computer is doing and mm -hmm. the fact that I've actually told the computer to do this. Right. That the algorithm, just there and it just mm -hmm. operates mm -hmm. there really is a feeling you know sort of worries me for the future but but you know people associate very closely with that thing in the computer mm -hmm. they, i don't know they are, i suppose it's the siri approach the you know i i really like siri or i really dislike siri mm -hmm. because she's telling things right uh, these are just algorithms right. <laughs> a, it's not a real person mm -hmm. right and and I, I always think, especially today, because as I say, I've, um, I've, I've been teaching how you do it now or how you program. Mm -hmm. A lot of the AI is integrated within the system. So you can actually, you can actually integrate very quickly and say, I want these AI abilities attached to this character. Mm -hmm. And then the character will, or you just, you just sort of basically massage it. You don't build it. Right. 
Um, so, for example, with movement routines, you can now just say, really, hey, I'll just go A star and with these characteristics. In you're my day, sorry, you're what? Oh, A star is a movement routine within C++. Okay. Or, or anything. Any mm-hmm. It's a way of writing a movement system. Okay. And to another programmer, that's obvious. That's how you do it, mm-hmm. or in, in certain situations. Mm-hmm. In the 90s, there was no system. Mm-hmm. You just had to write this thing from scratch, and there was no rules or no regulations or anything. People hadn't written a number of different ways of, of doing it. Mm-hmm. You just had to write it uh, as a, uh, putting bricks together, mm-hmm. like Did Lego you- blocks. Did you do you feel that that was in any way uh, fundamentally creatively different for you at that time than than later on? Yeah, the, the one the one word I'll use which describes the difference is memory. Um, when I wrote the movement system for Battlefront, even though it was a very small map, mm-hmm. you had to estimate so many things because there was no memory available for you to spread things out like an Excel sheet and work out every possibility, mm-hmm. even though you may have, you may have had the time to do it. Mm-hmm. That also comes down to the, to the way you write. The very, the first game I wrote was a 13 K basic program. The second game I wrote was a 96 K <laughs> basic program. And I said at that point, I will never ever write in basic again. And I, I have kept that, that promise. <laughs> the game after that, was a 6502 machine language game. Hmm. Because what you can do with, with machine language, or particularly in those days, the Apple computer or Commodore 64 computer had 64K of memory. I had actually memory maps mm-hmm. of every single byte in that memory, mm-hmm. block, blocked actually into four, four, uh, 4K hex blocks of mm-hmm. memory. Um, and so... Um, within that memory, you then broke up what was actually in that block. And the beginning of the block was an address. You called that address and it would go to that part of the block. Mm-hmm. Um, and the um, that way, you could basically fill every byte of the computer up with code, mm-hmm. and it would be running at the machine rate of the machine. Mm-hmm. So basically a... a um, what are the processes in those days? I think we're a mega, something like that. were small, but mm-hmm. they, they work very fast. In basic, um, you just couldn't do that. Yeah, well, it's too high level program. Yeah. Oh, you, you, you had to go machine language. Yeah. Um, then when the PCs came along and started to, to make an impact, when I went to the, I decided I wouldn't go 8086 mm-hmm. because memory had, Proved to the extent where you didn't have to go to the machine language, and they, this language called C was supposed to be fast. Mm-hmm. So as a, as a, a normal person, I didn't believe this, mm-hmm. <laughs> but when I when I tried it out, it really was. It was it was as fast as machine language. Mm-hmm. It it really oh, almost it, it you could write it. It was readable. It was easily you could you could transfer it across so you could do a lot of things and it, it worked very well I, I i'm so at that point i went on to c then i wanted to c plus plus and basically every game we released was in one of these types of languages okay does that include the uh that includes decisive campaigns uh yeah uh, everything. everything we 
like these days, I do know how to program in Unity and uh, Unreal. Mm-hmm. I prefer Unreal over Unity, but um, with my programmers, they sort of say, yeah, but Unity is C-sharp, you see. And then I said, no, I can write um, C++ code for Unity. It's not, not a problem. And I've, I've actually done that in the past. Um, because then the memory manager doesn't, you, you actually go out into your C++ code <laughs> and then go back to Unity. Um, you're, the, you're going, you're going outside of my, my, my uh, <laughs> scope of expertise, way outside of it here, uh, my friend. Well, you see, with Unity, all the Unity graphics routines are in C++. And, and they call Unity a C-sharp machine, but it's not. It's just a machine. And what's the difference between C-sharp and, and C++? You're not a programmer. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to describe, describe the difference between basic and C sharp, but C sharp is a what's called a basically a managed system. Hmm. You can't make a mistake, really. And and uh, excuse me for saying that because, but but really it's hard to make a mistake. It drive you you're driven into a particular way, and it excuses so much. Hmm. Um, there's it's an it's a lovely way to write. Uh, it manages you. It tells you tells you what you can do. Tells you what you can't do. Well, it must be kind of and frustrating C++, for somebody who knows what they're doing. Well, in C plus plus, just do whatever you want to do. Yeah, there there is no and and not only that, but if you do it wrong, it'll kill you. <laughs> and it might even wipe your machine out. <laughs> it literally see see um, C plus plus can so quickly. Uh, just crash, it just wipe everything hmm. if you don't do things within the rules. Uh-huh. And this is. I think there's a metaphor why. there somewhere. Oh, I th- but in C++, I could actually cr- almost within it create my own language and within that language start programming in a way that I understood it. Mm-hmm. But anyone entering it would, would find that they'd have a very hard job to even know what you're doing. Hmm. So that meant that when we hired programmers, they programmers we hired were very good in many cases. And my instructions were to them, this is after a couple of experiments, was write as you want to. Mm-hmm. Write your best code. Mm-hmm. I don't care what it is. Just write the best way you can. Mm-hmm. And I remember examining a for, what's called a for loop in, in, um, in any programming language. And this, and this program had written one for loop. And it took me an hour to work out what it was doing because in this one line of code, he had probably, I think, about five subroutines included in the for loop, hmm. which this is not how you're supposed to write. Okay. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> but it was fast and it worked. Hmm. And, and so you approved. The, oh, look, if it was fast and it worked, like – the one thing that a C++ programmer is trying to do is go for speed mm-hmm. uh, in, in the 80s and the 90s mm-hmm. because then it can be more intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, the faster you can move animation around the screen, the more time you can spend thinking. Okay. Um, the faster you can do the AI, the, the more you can, you know, more time you've got to do various flashy things. I see. So everything's a trade-off, but speed is not a trade-off. Speed has to be Absolutely, you have to maximize the ability of, in speed attributes. It just You have to get that right. Mm-hmm. And anyone who wrote sloppy code that just spent time doing things, no, you, you had to crush that immediately. Interesting. 
Well, tell me about, so from, from a code standpoint, how, how big, because I mean, there's a huge difference between Operation Apocalypse and, you know, uh, Ardennes Offensive. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> so how, it's for machines. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, well, I mean, it's, it's different. Uh, it's a different uh, uh, sort of idea of game design. You had this, uh, I mean, I remember uh, I was on the side, I was um, writing for a games domain. And uh, a fellow named Tim Chown, uh, um, who was the editor, the strategy editor there at the time, I think Tim and you probably may have corresponded sometime. Uh, he sent along this note saying, you know, I found this perfectly amazing game and uh, it's your kind of game. You're going to love it. And uh, it has this ridiculously long name. It's called something like the Decisive Campaigns of World War II colon the Ardennes Offensive. And I said, well, it just sounds like a bulge game. Send it to me. And uh, and it was it was fantastic. But you had sort of, uh, I think in that system, which you then, uh, which you then sort of developed in Course and Pocket, which was I think next, and then you did across the Dnepr, and then um, you had Kharkov, you, and now I think I understand you're, you're redoing some of this. Um, you incorporated all of these ideas um, that were still basic board game ideas that I think Ian probably was very familiar with, but you had then put them in this computer framework that was uh, really something new. It, it did things that the board games could never do, but it, it didn't turn into this kind of black box where you just kind of move things around and saw what happened and sort of it was kind of more like a, like a you know, war game role playing where you just sort of did things and things happened. You, there, were, there was an actual really tight system. Tell me about how you guys got on that whole thing because it became very popular for SSG, I think. Yeah. It's, it's a game I, I've actually thoroughly enjoyed. And um, when, I, when, I, when I actually was involved in the writing of it, I mean, it just, Ian, Ian certainly did design The Last of Us mm -hmm. And an interesting thing was Steve Faulkner was actually allowed to do the music for The <laughs> Last of Really? Uh, oh, that was, yeah, well it, was called, a, it was called that split screen. Yes, but I, be, I believe there were, there were there were copyright issues, or somebody already had trademarked that for a game or something like that. You, change, you guys changed oh, the name at the end, yeah. The I, I know, for example, that with um, with Steve though, he he was always complaining about the fact that he had loved to do music, and we told him that he's a programmer. Uh -huh. Look, just go back and program the bloody game. Uh -huh. <laughs> We've got a deadline coming up, yeah. <laughs> and he just said, no, he just wanted to write music hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. uh, He's a very, very talented individual, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and for Last Bits Three, we actually allowed him to go and make the complete music track for that game. Mm -hmm. And he did two games. One was Warlord, one of the Warlords games, mm -hmm. and that game he could do the, the soundtracks mm -hmm. for. <laughs> you you never let him free on this because um, his time was so valuable. Yeah. Uh, he he. In fact, when he left the company, he went and started a company down in Melbourne and just recently he just uh, he's still working down there and it was about five years ago he decided he was going to publish a completely free game online mm -hmm. and it wanted to be he wanted it to be the best free game that you could ever publish online <laughs> and it, it did he, he, the team worked phenomenally well it's mm -hmm. called gems of war okay and when he published it online it was Beautiful and it was free. Mm -hmm. No advertising, nothing like that. Just mm -hmm. he then found out the mistake in this. 
he really would like to earn a living off this. <laughs> <laughs> and he he wasn't. Right. In fact, he was earning nothing. Mm-hmm. So then he then he picked up this co- this concept of the term merchandising, mm-hmm. and uh, he's a, he introduced that to the game, and it has been developing ever since. It's still mm-hmm. playing. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a magnificent game. No advertising. You can play it for free, and if you wish, you can spend as much as you wish. Interesting. So he's <laughs> but uh, the free to play bandwagon. Interesting. Well, he, he he used to go where I used to teach uh, pro game programming. He used to come around and talk to the students about merchandising, mm-hmm. and his talks on merchandising were just a delight um, because he started with the parameters he established at the start. Mm-hmm. And then you could see the crossed out lines through these <laughs> <laughs> change to this. Right. Which... <laughs> so get your mind correctly established. To, mm-hmm. um, well, you're doing this for a reason. Right. Well, probably a lot of experience that, uh, that led to that. Yeah. But uh... yeah. So for all the gamers, people out there that think they're going to write a game, know that if you do, you want to get something back for it. Mm-hmm. You, you want to. Um, and the one thing when I started, uh, I really didn't care. Uh, and many of the decisions I've ever made in my life are not ones that I've sat down and thought, is this a really good idea? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just, I just did it. Mm-hmm. For example, with the, uh, when I was the international Australasian director for, for this region, mm-hmm. uh, in the IAC, this was an international body. And all you did was you had to send forms in occasionally outlining all the stuff that you would have to work out mm-hmm. about your region. Yeah. That was no one wanted this position. Absolutely no. What no did one you want it? it? It was really interesting. <laughs> like you, you would have to get to know all your, you know, what was actually happening in your region. Mm-hmm. And it was an international body doing this. Why would you not want to do it? I see. And then when I was in America, I was at uh, SSI, and they had a meeting in Las Vegas. Las Vegas and they said, oh, since you're in, in, um, in San Francisco, we'll pay for you to come down to um, Las Vegas and go to the meeting. Mm-hmm. So I then met these individuals, uh, and a couple of days later, I walked into the meeting, and they knew then I was going to pass a motion that all, me- all members had to attend all meetings. The motion after that was going to be that they take the word international out of this. Ah. I see. <laughs> because because if you couldn't, you know, if members couldn't attend the meetings, then right. how could they do the work? Right. And so that was actually passed. So all of a sudden, I had to go, I was paid to mm-hmm. go to America four times a year <laughs> to attend <laughs> meetings. Then individuals thought, this was really good, and they actually tried – a number of individuals actually tried to, to win the position away from me. Mm-hmm. Quite quite amazingly, really. They, they did a fantastic job. And eventually, in fact, one gentleman came up to me and said that he was so cons- – he really wanted to find out how he could actually get the position I had. <laughs> and I said, look, one of the good ways would be go to the ethics committee of the IAC mm-hmm. because you could explain that I'm not doing the correct job ethically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he said, well, how would you do that? And I said, that's easy because I'm actually chairman of the ethics committee. <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, he, he just got, he gave up. Yeah. But I, what they didn't realize, they knew Sydney. I knew Australia. 
I had got involved in all the groups around this whole region. In fact, I knew basically all the regions. And if anyone, if there was ever going to be a vote, it was going to be a vote from all people. And they, they really had no chance. You're a bit of a politician uh, there, aren't you? No, you, I, I'm not a politician. Oh, believe me. <laughs> but you, you do what you can. You, 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 and you have, um, unfortunately now I, I, um, there's many things I would like to do, but that's mm-hmm. just not possible now. Uh, like what? But the, in Australia, for example, uh, much, uh, much uh, more so than in America, it's very hard for a gaming or for gaming talent mm-hmm. to, to gain money or to gain recognition for what they do. Why is that? Well, playing games is for fun, mm-hmm. and why would you spend money? I mean, it's like giving money to a band that plays down at your local pub. Mm-hmm. Why would you give them money? I mean, you know, because they're just a band at the local pub. I mean, I you know, they're not going to go anywhere, or, mm-hmm. and they only play for the local people to keep them happy. Mm-hmm. It's just not really a, something that's worth developing. Okay. So what so, would you like to do? Uh, first of all, um, there was a million dollar fund set up in Australia where individuals in the gaming scene could draw from it mm-hmm. as a loan. Mm-hmm. But if, if they failed, they didn't have to repay it back. Mm. But if they succeed, you have to pay the money back. Then to get that, to get that loan, you'd have to put justification through the right channels, right committees mm-hmm. um, to get that money. And this was actually set up and it was actually working for a very short amount of time until the government came along and just said, no, that money's, we need that money and just took it. Hmm. And again, you're left with a situation where if you're a, a group of gamers and you've got this great idea for a new game, there's no, we don't have venture capital here. I see. So in Silicon Valley, I go around to a few venture capitalists and say, you know, this is a possibility that could make a lot of money. Hmm. And the venture capitalists would in fact come up and give you, you know, you could actually get money. Okay. Uh, in Australia, there, there just is there is no ability to get. Uh, we have, for example, a group uh, in Sydney, and they're the group that write the networking for World of Tanks and World of Planes. Hmm. Um, they're doing very well. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone in Sydney, except myself and a few others, know that they're here. Hmm. <laughs> it's just. Not a, no one actually understands what's going on in Australia. It's just, we got, we had Fruit Ninja here, uh, but they, uh, they really haven't done much. I mean, they, they, uh, after Fruit Ninja, they couldn't really make anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other companies here that are actually done very well. Uh, Gems of War, for example, I mentioned before, doing very well. Um, it's hard to explain to people that that's actually an Australian game. Uh, because no one actually thinks of it being made here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it just, uh, it's a, it's a difficulty which has been with me my whole life. Mm-hmm. And it is like, amazing that it's still here. You yeah. just the, the recent, the recent isolation has actually meant that gamers that I know that mm-hmm. I've got friends on Facebook with <laughs> have been posting these things saying that, you know, now playing games at home is actually re- being regarded as a you know not the the catastrophic event of addiction of right it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's putting your time to to safe use uh, <laughs> so I guess it sounds well, like, it sounds to me like like gaming uh, Australian gaming is a brand recognition problem 
And it sounds like so you'd, like to, you'd so. like to rectify that somehow. Yeah. But it's like I, I've talked to many parents about uh, Fortnite and they, they worry about their children are playing it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they, they often see Fortnite, for example, as a complete waste of time. And even Minecraft is, um, um, is regarded in, by many people in that same area. Mm-hmm. You know, you allow your child to play Minecraft for an hour mm-hmm. because, you know, give them something that they can do. Mm-hmm. It's not that they actually learn things from it or that they might be actually learning skills or, or learning techniques on a very unique environment, which is going to be valuable in the future. No, it's just you're giving them something they want to do briefly because they've earned it. Right. Well, <laughs> you're I, being generous. Well, I'm, I, I have to say that uh, I think people who, who are um, drawn to that kind of thing are going to find a way to do it. And uh, it sounds to me like, uh, you know, you had an awakening when you got when you sat down with computers and, and, and this was something that you really felt um, not only drawn to, but you had a unique talent for. And uh, um, it sounds to me like you should do everything you can to help other people in Australia find that talent if they have it, right? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. But when I was at the University in Queens, sorry, University in Canterbury and mm-hmm. um, New Zealand in uh, the early 70s, mm-hmm. I took a course in computer science and immediately gave it up. Uh, it, it was hopeless. Um, you Why had to write on cards. Uh-huh. And I, I, I always believe they shuffled the cards before they put them in the computer. <laughs> but it might have just, but what I did find, though, the engineering department had computers, mm-hmm. and the guys there are very nice guys. They would let me into their computers at night if I wrote games for them. Oh. So every <laughs> night I go, I have hands-on all the engineering department's computers. What kind <laughs> I of games choose did you what write? I wanted. Oh, look, I figured. I know once we were sitting there, and this was not my design because this was an analog computer, mm-hmm. and they, we we all sat around. I didn't really. There's no programming on this. It's all it's all electrodes and wiring, mm-hmm. and we actually um, designed a moon landing game, and then you had to land the the, the uh, moon landing module on the moon, mm-hmm. but then we made the mass of the craft equal to the fuel. But, so as you use fuel, the mass would decrease, but the I thrust see. would be the same. Mm-hmm. You can probably see where this is going. Oh, yeah, yeah. So if you use too much fuel to start with, you're not going to land on the moon because the smallest mm-hmm. amount of thrust is going to send you into orbit. That's funny. So to land on the moon was a real, real effort at that point. Everybody has these moon landing games seem to be like I remember when I took when I was a kid and I took basic programming classes, that was one of the that was one of the main things was having the the moon lander that you had the thrust and you had fuel and you had, you know, gravity and you had all this kind of sort of stuff. And and you had to and and you had the vectors and direction that was pointing. And and um, uh, I guess there's something something unique about uh, or something universal about making moon landing games how did you make a moon landing game with uh with how how would that be expressed in a in a punch card game uh mainly in those days um everything was printer based um we we wasted so much paper uh <laughs> so and you, you know the printers were very big so you'd run a card so you, i mean you you'd, you'd give a command and then the cards oh, would run it you would i i refuse to do that i i, I just refuse point blank okay um I, my computer 
science course was basically a complete failure because I wasn't going to sit down and write cards. Um, okay. Yeah, only if you were given a special star where you're allowed to touch a keyboard mm-hmm. and have direct access to the computer. I see. Um, I had no idea because I never got a star. Never got a star. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> and well, doesn't seem to have slowed and, you down. Or, or you could just bribe the engineering yeah. students. Hmm. Very <laughs> nice. Well, tell uh, me about tell me about what you're what you're because you're still doing stuff. What are you what are you doing now, Roger? What, what's what's okay. your what's your um what's your your pastime now? Not pastime. Your your occupational uh, projects. Okay. Well, first of all, I, I actually am retired. Well, basically, uh, either a retired or a pension or a how, if you like to put this. Okay. Um, I have many friends who, you know, are, are in my position, but they're multimillionaires. And I'm not. Okay. <laughs> so, but um, I, I can live quite easily as as I am at the moment. Mm-hmm. But I love programming. Uh, uh, I've written recently. I was involved with a, a small group. We were writing. Um, um, both a, a Unity game and also tried a, an Unreal one, mm-hmm. but they it really requires effort and money with in other outsiders to get to a point where you can publish. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned in Australia, coming up with that money meant either I was going to have to supply it and, mm-hmm. it, and this was going to be an increasingly substantial amount, mm-hmm. or or it wasn't it just wasn't going to finish. So I yeah. decided not to do that okay um since then i've been working on a i've basically taken the across the deeper code mm-hmm. and working with a, a gentleman who's worked with me before in melbourne steve ford we're actually uh working on a um on a battle of the bulge game mm-hmm. based on the same engine mm-hmm. uh except i'm rewriting the ai um rewriting certain elements of the game completely uh and uh, as I've said before, if we release this, I don't know how we'll release it yet. I've mm-hmm. talked to Gregor about yeah. how this will get out there. Right. I'm actually, I'm actually looking. If anyone's interested in, in um, as a testing environment, if they mm-hmm. want to be a tester, mm-hmm. uh, just to contact me, and you can certainly say or advertise the fact that um, it'll be pretty ready for testing about the end of next month. Okay. So this is this is this is bulge. Uh, in the same system, or 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 if you change the system, if you take a if you take the very latest version of across the Geneva, mm-hmm. uh, it's that in a sense that game system, okay. but it is a, a radical over, overhaul. Um, for example, I can just bring it up as a window over here and spread that window across two screens. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, it oh. doesn't matter, mm-hmm. uh, and. The the AI is uh, very much revised. The uh, um, there's uh, a, a number of elements within the system that mm-hmm. are completely rewritten. Okay. Because I suppose I I I didn't doing something brand new. I've tried that a couple of times and they they have essentially failed. And um, they require this thing called a lot of money, <laughs> <laughs> which I've I've lacked. Mm-hmm. Um, and but the talent around is amazing. I mean, uh, the the individuals I've worked with recently, uh, they, you know, it, it is just sad that, that I can't, you know, I I really like to be able to put groups together and make games, but that's mm-hmm. not going to happen unless I ever got to the stage where I'm actually profitable again. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And, you know, I mean, SSG in the 90s was making a lot of money and mm-hmm. could do this. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, I'm not willing to take that risk. Those, right. those days, I suppose, of being in a position where you just simply don't care yeah. have gone. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's, uh, the, <clears throat> that's, that's a place where, uh, when, as you get older, it's probably not a very wise decision to risk lots of money, uh, that you may be, uh, needing for, for retirement. So that's, uh, I, I don't, I certainly don't blame you. I'm just sorry that uh, you don't get the opportunity to do uh, more of what you obviously love to do so much. Um, what, uh, was Steve Ford still, still working with you? And I, he was, he, he yes, worked, he's working with me right now. Yeah. He worked with you. Uh, he was, he was involved in, in a bunch of SSG stuff, wasn't he? Correct. Yeah. Uh, he's not a, he's not a programmer. He's an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also a designer. So um, his knowledge of World War II is spectacular. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it uh, again, he is in the Gregor N. Steve Ford area. That that's these people really understand orders of battle. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, they they understand how how the 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 structure of each force is mm-hmm. is compiled. Yeah, you once told me that uh, it was it was fascinating to sit with with them just at lunchtime and and listen to them go back and forth. Oh, it just, it, there's nothing better in life than, than seeing or to, than sitting down, having a cup of coffee with phenomenally, or to me, they're intelligent people, mm-hmm. to other people, they're idiots, mm-hmm. um, but <laughs> intelligent people talk about the most, about historical aspects, mm-hmm. uh, and you get argumentative points. Yeah. And uh, you know, was the weather really responsible for this, or was it the fact that their, their morale had just cracked? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or, you know, the, the, the various aspects that actually brought about the result that actually happened. Uh, and you can sort of see, you can see what happened, but why did that get to that point? So, for example, at Midway, why did the Japanese put their carriers at the front? Mm-hmm. And the reason there is that they regard their battleships much more highly than the, the carriers. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, if the carriers have been really valued, they would have been in the middle of the group and the battleships right. would have been the front. Right. Uh, which maybe, in hindsight, have been a much better way of arranging your force mm-hmm. than the way they did. Yeah, well, uh, there's certain, but, there are certain games that, that allow you to test that theory. Yeah, and also that, you know, as the simulations actually showed, you should actually listen to the simulations mm-hmm. <laughs> and not just throw them out and just say, well, they were just stupid, mm-hmm. <laughs> because how could you possibly lose three carriers? Yeah, right. <laughs> um I think I think many people have actually, uh, and I, I don't think we're actually much different these days. Uh, the, um, in I'm I tend personally to be very anti-war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I I just don't believe that it actually achieves very much in mm-hmm. its own right. I mm-hmm. suppose that puts you on sort of one side of the political structure. Mm-hmm. Um, I I regret people losing their lives over war. Mm-hmm. And what war produces. Mm-hmm. Um, I always think there are, are general, in most cases, there are diplomatic ways of dealing with things that are much better. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, war is your final go to point. Is that and there makes, are times. Is that what makes it so compelling as a game? Well, again, this is really history. Um, there are points in history where you have to say, we have to go to war. Uh, there, there is, there is no choice. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you simply say, okay, you know, we will take this seriously. We are doing this. No question asked. Okay. Um, but to 
to me, before you get there, you have to go through all the diplomatic process of saying, is there a way we could possibly have, like you could you could take Pearl Harbor, for example, and say, you know, where the incidents that happened up to Pearl Harbor, could they have been diplomatically handled differently mm-hmm. to the point where Pearl Harbor did not have to take place mm-hmm. or would not have taken place? I mean, Jap- Japan was our ally in World War I. Uh, it was their enemy in World War Two. Nominally, they were yes. They, were. they didn't. They, they didn't. They didn't expect expend much blood or treasure in uh, World War One. I. I think they. No. They, but they but did. They weren't their enemy. That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. And I try to explain this to people, and um, why I do it, I suppose, is because most people only look at World War Two. Mm-hmm. They can't see beyond that point back to the point to history, if you like, and to think that okay, before then. Uh, these individuals were were actually not. I mean, they actually they actually were involved with an um, with an action in World War One with the Australian forces. But oh, were they? I didn't know that. I mean, uh, that, that's that's pushing you right to the limit if you actually knew the answer to that one. The sinking of the Emden. Oh, the Emden. Yes, the German raider had a, had was in Japanese the Indian, ship. Indian Ocean. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. I didn't know that. Because I know that the Emden was sunk by the Australians, right? Yes. Yeah. And there was a Japanese ship involved in that action. I didn't know that. I hope, I hope I'm right here. Yeah. <laughs> for for and, the listeners, uh, yeah, for the listeners, the Emden was a uh, was a was a ship that the, the Germans had these uh, these individual convoy raiders that uh, that would just they sort of freelance it. And uh, the Emden got into the Indian Ocean and was quite successful and uh, was ultimately tracked down and sunk by the Australians. Uh, but I had no, I did not know. That uh, the Japanese had a ship uh, in the action at Saint yeah. Anthony, so I believe a... they did. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll I'll, I'll 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 trust but verify. I'll check that out after we talk. Yeah, uh... I got Google here too. I normally <laughs> normally I like quickly just shoot yeah. over. Sure. I'll watch you. But, uh, well, and again with programming these days, you you program with Google at your side. Of course, um, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, you... in the 90s that was very difficult. <laughs> well, in the 90s you had did you have um, uh, all sorts of, of programming books and things like that. that, that you would, you would, I had a, I had a bookcase to the side of me, and mm-hmm. about about four of those books were just literally full of uh, little notes and mm-hmm. completely used to almost the point where they almost fell apart. Yeah, yeah. And then you had all these other books which were brand new, mm-hmm. hardly me touched. Right. And, you know, the, but there were a number of books there I still remember. Just um, there was one in C++, you have a thing called Kerrigan and Ritchie. Mm-hmm. It was never used. <laughs> that was that was the ultimate book you were supposed to have. Like, but there the, were other the, books. The thin Kerrigan and Ritchie, right? It was a, it was a white yeah. book. It was just C, yeah. right, I think? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're supposed to have it, so I did. Yeah. But there were other books which were brilliant. They, they were just um, uh, you could go to it. You could find exactly what you wanted. And it had every, you know, basically had everything. Then eventually they bought, um, in the 2000, they bought in a system um, which uh, which was using basically what now is called vectors and other things within a, a standard template library. And I was told this thing called a standard template library, which were added to your program, mm-hmm. and it would actually do things faster than you could with all these magical abilities. So people explained these things it could do, mm-hmm. and uh, it was amazing. And is then they true? said, it's is actually it faster. It's faster than you could code. You know, your code, written in the old way, mm-hmm. 
will actually be slower than this hugely improved system. Okay, was that true? Sounds like a sounds like a final. Well, I, no one's going to believe that. So I actually took my movement routines, and then I then I basically had a, it's in C++. It's a, a hash of zero else. So you can actually write something twice, mm-hmm. and just by by changing a, a just a switch, okay. you can have which one is operating. Okay. So one was written using the new system. Mm-hmm. The one was written using my system. Mm-hmm. I was going to show them that my system was faster. Mm-hmm. And I ran this whole thing, and this was faster. It was substantially faster. Really? Yeah, it just yeah. – and it was – this to say it was more powerful, it was like going from a, you know, a, a four-engine thing that was just plotting along the road to, mm-hmm. to this eight-engine bloody powerhouse, yeah. a, a V8 system that would just – you could just lean on. It's just a – so standard template library really changed programming in, the, in those days. Um, and I never looked back after that. It was okay. just everything was. It's very much like in the mid '90s, as a, as the quote head programmer of SSG. Mm-hmm. Although we were all very independent, mm-hmm. I made the decision that every single thing that we wrote was going to be a network game. Okay. Even if the even if the game itself wasn't network, mm-hmm. so it would be a it could never actually be networked. You had to write it as a programmer as if it could be. Why was that? What happens if it's successful? I see. Okay. And if you if you then take it to a sequel and you want that sequel to go anywhere, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be neat to actually have the ability to say, why don't we network it? Oh. Did that slow down production? I mean, or, or, or no? Or now development. It, it's the how. It's really from the very start of a game. It's how you start writing. Nice. So you don't do an action here. Mm-hmm. You signal the action is to take place, and that action takes place somewhere else. I see. Um, so, and that will be the that becomes the network server basically. Mm-hmm. And so you're sending your command to a network server, and that actually goes to the place in the program which does that particular thing. Got it. So you're never calling directly; it's all calling indirectly okay. your code. Yeah. Um, and that way, you don't have a system which. You know, you've got a, a you know, a, literally in a game, you could have a thousand things all independent. Then you turn it to a network code. Well, take all of those thousand things and put them in the this server-based structure. Mm-hmm. And if you miss one of them, yeah, the whole game will crash. Yeah. yeah. And you, you, because everything gets out of sync. Well, I, I remember playing uh, Warlords Three: Dark Lords Rising uh, by Network. Uh, probably was in the late '90s. Uh, and uh, it was great, except I don't think that our um, 56K modems uh, were really up to the job. So we had a lot of lag and whatever. But I think that was, I mean, it was, you really, that game was a great multiplayer game. Uh, I just think it worked better probably as an email game because uh, you couldn't, it, we, when we tried to set it up as a, as a network, somebody was always, it wasn't the game's fault, but we were always dropping connections and somebody's, you know, Somebody's connection wasn't fast enough, and you had to wait, and then things would stuck. But, uh, but um, I, I love, I love the Warlords. I love the Warlords games. They were. They I remember, were really I remember once playing with Steve Faulkner and uh, we with Gregor, and um, I typed over the open channel, just in the chat channel, um, uh, to Steve, uh, and Gregor could read it. Um, let's, uh, should we use the cheat codes? <laughs> Steve immediately typed back, "Yours or mine." <laughs> So, uh, and you just sort of think, 
here is a person at the other end who really doesn't trust programmers anyway. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Just wondering oh, what, what is going on here. <laughs> but the other thing that – the best Warlords game I ever played mm-hmm. was one that was never sold. Um, we rewrote the code, Steve and I, mm-hmm. um, and all the human players played together mm-hmm. in a sort of a real-time player aspect. Mm-hmm. And then it moved, and then after the players, the human players had all finished, mm-hmm. the computer players then took their turns. So you could sit, sit back while the computer players took their turns. Oh, okay. And then it would thrust you into all the human players playing together. Hmm. And that was just a beautiful game. Uh, Why didn't you sell it? The, uh, we were dealing with Broderbund. Mm-hmm. Uh, Broderbund wanted us to go um, really uh, a, a real uh, to a real time system. I see, uh, and that became Battlecry. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, this idea that you could have a sort of from turn based to real time, you could have a uh, an intermixed system mm-hmm. that just wasn't it wasn't practical for them. I see. So we, we, we signed the contract for Battlecry and this, but we actually played this one in the middle. I mean, uh, I always remember playing my son once because I was annihilating him because in our home we had a, a complete setup of networking mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, except he's devious. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I actually went right across the map because I had the power to do this mm-hmm. and I went to this ruin to search it because that was part of a quest and I'd mm-hmm. just get so much stuff mm-hmm. and I had to fight to get this quest mm-hmm. and I didn't get it. So I wrote down beside me that there was a bug in the program and something had gone wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I hadn't realized, he'd worked out that I would do that. I don't know how he ever did, but he worked out I would do this. Mm-hmm. He had a cloak of invisibility. He was mm-hmm. beside me. Mm-hmm. And he knew that when he fought, when I fought, I'd be down to the minimum force I would have, mm-hmm. and he could clobber that minimal force. <laughs> ah, so he assassinated you. So before before I could claim my reward, mm-hmm. and just after the fight, yeah, he killed me. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> and he picked up all my items, oh. and then killed then killed me directly. Oh. So. And you thought that was yes, a bug? Oh, he... How did you find out? He told you. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> the joy that was coming from the other... Actually, he was, he was turned away from me on the other side of the room. Uh-huh. I, I got, you know, after I'd written down the fact it was a bug and mm. turned around, I could just see this may not have been a bug. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he... Um, no, he always was up to a challenge. And um, he was one of the people I used a lot to just test the programming out. He was always willing to come in and, uh, mm-hmm. and try, you know, to, to test everything in the system. Mm-hmm. And he would do what I told is my daughter, she didn't like the combat side of things so mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember playing between my son, my daughter and myself and my son had attacked my daughter. She got up out of her seat, walked over and hit him over the back of the head. <laughs> <laughs> I had to explain then that this was a game. And she said he attacked me. <laughs> so, 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 but I had to go to um, once over when I I was overseas. I went to see ensembles uh, and Age of Empires, and no, sorry, sorry, this was SimCity. Uh, I saw mm-hmm. Maxis, mm-hmm. and I had to get the codes off Maxis that gave you all the cheats in the game, mm-hmm. so I could give them to her, 
um, and within SimCity and also Age of Empires, she what she would do there is she just wall off a peasant so the game would never end. Mm-hmm. You know, kill off the early ones, just yeah. wall off the peasant, and then develop the world. Hmm. Well, she she just like yeah, she just didn't like the idea of fighting. She loved the idea of developing and uh, mm-hmm. playing the game. That's city builders. I mean, that's what that's what that's what city builders are for, right? That's uh, yeah. that's the that's. But Age of Empire is a city builder. No, I'm saying city builders in general, but no, Age of Empires <laughs> is definitely not a city builder. I agree. Oh, she played it as a city builder. That's what you got to do is keep one peasant alive, mm-hmm. and you can do what you like. I can do what you like. That's right. That's fantastic. The game doesn't end. Mm-hmm. I I never thought of doing that, but that's I can I can see where I can see where that would go. <laughs> I, yeah. So again, uh, the one thing that my children taught me was like, this point that to to look at all the aspects of how people play your games and mm-hmm. what they're after. Um, uh, in historical games, you really want to try for that historic. I've always been try for historical accuracy, but for example, in the, across the Dnieper, mm-hmm. we had four step per unit. Four steps, there was, yes. There was, yeah, there was huge arguments in the company over, well, should we have the number of men uh, we should we have, you know, if you've got 30,000 men, it's now mm-hmm. down to 10,000. Really? You know, well, you know, and we always came back to the point of, well, and then we uh, fatigue was the other one that, that came mm-hmm. in. Um, you know, how do you deal with it? But you bring elements, game elements, into the system where fatigue is inherent in the in the game system. So yeah. you're doing things, you're actually you know getting a replacement, which is actually an expression of fatigue. You know, you are you you are actually resting and recuperating. Right. Right. Yes, because or, you can get. You can get replacements, yes, because in that in that system you can get uh, you can lose a step that's not really lost. You can lose a step that if you don't lose another step for a period of time, then you get the step back. So yeah. that's your fatigue, yes. Whereas if you fight again and lose a step, then that step loss becomes permanent. So yeah, that's actually oh, that's a fatigue. That's a that's a interesting how you yeah. I'm so glad you didn't have you know. You had 17,184 men. Now you have 16,473 men. That, that's, that's so tedious and it, and it, it takes the player, it takes the player's attention and puts it in a place that doesn't need to be. It just, it's this, it's, yeah. uh, um, I don't know. I, I don't enjoy that. I, I really, that's what, that's one of the reasons I like the, that system, the course in pocket, across the nipper so much. Or, or for example, you know, your men are fatigued, you just can't move. <laughs> And yeah, players do not like to be told yeah. that, or right. in any way. Yeah. In the, we did a few tactical American Civil War games, and Ian really liked it when things didn't go to plan. Uh, even for example, in Wall, actually, Wallers is a better example. He wanted to have it when your hero explored a ruin. There was a high chance of the hero dying. Mm. That sounds unpleasant. We we pointed out to him that a lot of players. Don't like this. <laughs> and he pointed out to us, well, they should realize that this is what happens. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, this was a Gregor and my argument. We had to give it to him that, yes, occasionally a hero will die, yeah, but not to the extent that he wanted. That's funny. And then if he does die, then what well, I did, I then took over and made sure that the next hero comes along the next turn and offers himself for your recruitment. Got it. Yeah. Um, you know, you cannot be with zero heroes. You can't. Right. Right. This is just not yeah. a, not going to happen. Yeah. 
You mentioned um, you mentioned that I want to get to the, the Warlords uh, Battle Cry where you went uh, mm-hmm. you went uh, real time because you also had but as as I recall and I should look this up before but I recall Battle Cry had a a sort of turn based sort of overall campaign kind of thing where you could carry yeah. capture different territories I think. Yeah, it really wasn't. Yeah, you know, it was area based, not not turn based. It was a, a bit like Panzer General, if you wish. Yes, uh, yes, yes. In, in right. the sense that yes, you you progress through right uh, through se- several battles through um, um, a. This was at that stage actually we'd um, we'd actually split off and we'd set up SSG Melbourne and SSG mm-hmm. Sydney. Oh, okay. So SSG Melbourne was responsible for Warlords uh, Battle Cry. Mm-hmm. Um, and before then, it was just one SSG, and it was um, just completely the, the the two were intermixed. Okay. But by splitting off with Steve, Steve could then run his whole Melbourne operation with his own programmers. Mm-hmm. Um, there was artistic talent was shared, mm-hmm. but the programmers really weren't shared. Okay. They worked on the tasks. Got they it. completed the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But we found that there was just we could then work in Sydney on our own projects. They could work on, on Warlords, mm-hmm. and this satisfied everyone because there was just everything worked amazingly, very well indeed. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, so I actually wasn't involved in really any of the work to do with Warlords Battlecry except for the huge amount of testing I put into it because I, I liked it. Yeah, it was a great game. <laughs> I really enjoyed that game. Uh, it just it, I, I was surprised. Warlord, I felt Warlords and War, Warlords 3 especially, I think the Reign of Heroes and Dark Lords Rising were such fantastic games. Um, but I, I have to admit I was a little, I don't know what, disappointed or, or sad that the Warlords Battle Cry was coming out as a real-time game. And I felt like this was sort of, you know, just an attempt to get into this real-time thing that, you know, I didn't think belonged to Warlords. And it was complete, I was completely wrong. I mean, I, I, it worked beautifully. Just it, it was a it was an excellent game and uh, it it showed that you guys really understood you weren't just making a real time game you were making a game that was warlords but was just using this different sort of rubric of real time strategy to still express the same things I I I, I think that that is a is a hallmark or a not it's a uh, an expression of a of a team's sort of mastery of their subject right. Because yeah. you can you have people that just make games and then they port it to some other thing and it's just you know uh, it, it's sort of a rote thing and you guys clearly understood everything about the game that you were making and and then could just make it a, a turn based game and then when it was time for a real time expression you did a great job I was just uh, um, I love those games those are those are those are those are games that I I will always remember fond, extremely fondly. And, and Steve Walker was really responsible for the, you know, all of the the RPG elements mm-hmm. through the whole of the Warlords series, and and really responsible completely for Warlords Battlecry on. But when he first started out, the very first thing he did and game mm-hmm. he tried to sell, mm-hmm. he was very much like me and knew absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. The way he sold it was, he would just give the game to somebody, and then it was a note saying, "If you enjoy this game, would you please send twenty five dollars <laughs> to this address?" Right, the shareware model, yes. Right. That's how he sold his games. Wow. Yeah, people <laughs> did that one time. Yeah. And uh, and then you know it moved on to the point where, as I say, he um, as a developing individual, uh, I've not seen you know I've never seen a more successful individual in everything that he has actually tried. Yeah. Um, 
I won't go into his ballroom dancing and his other <laughs> things that he does. No. Uh, a highly talented individual who has actually so many skills. It, it makes me very much ashamed because mm. I can sort of program somewhat and the AI sort of does what I mean. Well, <laughs> and you, you, you sell yourself short there, Roger, but uh, no, <laughs> nobody needs to be convinced that your that your your programs uh, that that, it, that those were really all those games were so good. They were just so. Um, they captured, I think, at the time that they were produced, they captured the things that gamers really wanted to get out of. Like when I played Terrors at War, everything that game did was something that I wanted to to to, to just immerse myself in. You had the you had the the bases, and you had your your planes that you would set up, and they would be you know ready to fly. You would have the bombers that you would want to bomb a Japanese base, but then you had your carriers, but then you had your you know your uh, invasion, your, your transports, and you 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 it, it was all um, kind of distilled down into exactly the things I wanted to do, and none of the sort of drudgery that I didn't want to do. And then obviously your AI was just uh, really um, that, which reminds me, uh, characters at War Two is sitting right over your shoulder. How did how did that one come about? Uh, really, it was just a, a sequel. It was just an, a, an extension of. Um... That was really an extension of the uh, the system. Uh, um, what Ian wanted to do was to take other battles. Uh, so, as a, as a code, as a code differential, you know, differentiation, it was very minor. Um, really? it, uh, of all the games I've ever written a sequel for, that one really wasn't that hard. Or I mean, we rewrote quite a number of things, but when you look at uh, even minor changes to Warlords or mm-hmm. minor changes to other games like uh, uh, the, the Course on Pocket or Last Bit Screed type mm-hmm. thing, um, they, revolved, they all evolved major components which had to be completely rewritten. Or in some mm-hmm. cases, the game itself would be re- would be rewritten. Mm-hmm. Um, so it comes down to the fact that if you can do a sequel with the code and materials that you have. Yes, that's okay. Uh, but the eventual, eventual thing here is you're trying to sell it. And through, and that's the unfortunate thing in gaming, the gaming world. I mean, you know, really, um, you know, the, it's one thing to be there, but there's another thing to actually think that you actually have to, to, in their case, make money to pay all the staff. Right. Mm-hmm. And think if you actually get this wrong, and we had to go go wrong a number of times where things would just start squeezing in, mm-hmm. and we had to say to our employees, "Well, look, you really have to um, to think about taking less. You know, we'll have to narrow down the salaries, but we'll pay you back at the end." Mm-hmm. So quite often, what Ian would do is pay all the taxes if we'd, they'd earned the money, mm-hmm. yeah, but pay them less money. And then at the end of that, he used to give them all that money as a because they had basically loaned it back to us. Oh, so he could get all that money as a as a as lump payment Got with it. no tax. Hmm. Okay. I guess so, I guess people tolerated so, that. If you could, some couldn't. Yeah. And I know that there was at least uh, a couple of people that we had involved with us, and we had to let, basically let them go because right. we simply couldn't afford the salaries, right. and they couldn't afford not to get it. Right. Yeah, um, and in that situation, what, what we would then do is call Gregor in, and Gregor would help them get another job. Yeah. And we did, I know there was at least two cases where that happened, but very, very few people ever left 
SSG without a, a serious reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and even now, a good number of my SSG old colleagues mm-hmm. are friends of mine on Facebook and we share <laughs> comments even now. Sounds like, sounds like it was, a, it was a, if not, you know, uh, wildly successful uh, monetarily, it was, it was quite successful in other ways, if that's, oh, if that's I, where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, very early on, um, I was I was I was talking to Ian about getting an office and setting up a, a correct structure because I'd seen SSI. I knew how you did this. Mm-hmm. Um, what Ian wanted to do was to work at home. He just said to me that if we didn't work at home, we would never see our children, hmm. and that was his words to me. And now, from my age right now, looking back, he was totally correct. Mm-hmm. We would work seven days a week yeah. and work, you know, literally months at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, many Americans who came to visit us couldn't believe that we didn't have an office. <laughs> if you if you were wanted to work with us, mm-hmm. okay, we would actually come round to your house and examine what we would need to do mm-hmm. to have you work profitably. Mm-hmm. Even bringing in workmen, mm-hmm. desks. Wow. Uh, uh, we would actually modify your house a bit if wow. needed. Really? And oh, this is after a three-month trial period. I mean, mm-hmm. not, not initially. Right. But um, if you left SSG, you were told, okay, everything at your office is yours. Huh. So, you know, we won't come in and right. you know, strip your house everything back down. down yet. Right. <laughs> Interesting. So so did everybody, did you ever have, did SSG ever have offices? No, never. No, never. And, uh, I have to mention one thing, though. We had a lot of interactions with individuals. The best I ever knew was, I don't know if you knew, the, the Jack Breen environment. Mm, yeah. um, Anne went to America and pointed out to Jack Breen that yeah. um, he was a great uh, Europa player. Jack Breen, yes. The, the Jack yes. Breen, so for the listeners, Jack Breen is a, a game designer, uh, d- designed uh, the second edition of Bismarck for Avalon Hill, a big, big uh, naval war gamer, um, Active in the board war, war gaming hobby since the sorry, writes books. Yes. Yeah, writes books. He's a he's a Jack Green is a is a is a uh, jack of all trades. I shouldn't that not a pun on his name. He quite he knows he does quite a few things, but uh, he also was known for playing uh, GDW's Europa system. So yes. I yeah I, and, I I think I know where this is going. Please do continue. Oh yes. Oh, and you know, Ian was pointing out how good he was at it. Mm-hmm. I, jack said, "Yeah, he might be good, but he but Jack could beat him." And Anne pointed out that he couldn't. Uh-huh. So they had to arrange a game. So Anne just said, okay, come to Australia. If you beat me, I'll pay your fare. Mm-hmm. Um, what if you, he loses? If, I be, if, I, if you lose, you eat the pieces. <laughs> <laughs> and the, oh, I think there may have, may have been some drink involved here. <laughs> they both shook on it. So Jack Green came over here. I've got photos. I can prove it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, they played this Europa game over a period of about five days because mm-hmm. Europa's not a short game. No, it's not. And uh, he Jack lost. Mm-hmm. And Ian eventually relented. Mm-hmm. And Jack had to eat an armor, a French armored division. <laughs> <laughs> Prepared on a plate with... With Korea, with Sai, with I've got a photo of the plate. I think of the the counters on the plate with the various other food. Oh, that's great. Now, the French was, armor, French armor division is not just one counter because uh, Europa Europa is 
uh, I believe, uh, regimental system. So you probably had a few regiments in there. Oh, yes. It was yeah. about, I think it was about 10 or 15 cows oh, okay. that went into the meal. Yeah. <laughs> but we were worried about the fact that lead poisoning may have been from <laughs> We didn't know really what how these counters were made. Oh, that's great! I love that. <laughs> and we really didn't want to get rid of a game for that. No, uh, yeah, you'd have to. Uh, yeah, you'd kind of. Uh, game was invaluable. Uh, yeah, it's like I can always remember back to the early '80s, or very early on in the '80s, and mm-hmm. uh, Jack Rady and um, and Chris Crawford and myself were driving mm-hmm. up to Chaosic Chaosium in Berkeley, mm-hmm. and Jack was just saying that if this car went into an accident and we all died. The world would have, you know, a, a design element just cut from them, <laughs> <laughs> and it would be substantially smaller. Yeah, that's that's, that's how we sort of thought in those days. It's, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Chris Crawford uh, designed Balance Power. Chris Crawford designed uh, Eastern Front, nineteen forty-one, which which was so so far ahead of its time at the time. Uh, it was only on the Atari, as I recall. And, yeah, uh, he, he actually worked at Atari. Oh, did he work yeah. at Atari? Yeah. Oh, I thought he came. Yeah, he actually went to Atari, the the boss of Atari once, and pointed out the fact that he had actually engineered a 10 megabyte drive to fit onto the Atari 800, and because he was using it, Mm -hmm. and uh, he wanted to explain to them how you could do this and how they could then sell it. Mm -hmm. They pointed out to him that no one would ever want to buy such a thing. (laughs) 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 He left Atari shortly Mm -hmm. thereafter. Yeah. Oh. But uh, but he loved games. Um, he was the one that was responsible for create the creation of the um, of what has now become the International Game Developers mm-hmm. uh, Association. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Jack Rady has uh, just done uh, just such a huge amount of effort. He still he still commentates from uh, his Washington base. Yeah, Jack. He's actually in Oregon. He's uh, uh, he lives. Oh, up, Oregon. Sorry. I'm gonna I'm gonna go interview Jack Ray one of these days. Uh, he lives about uh, 90 minutes south of me. Uh, I'm gonna. We've been trying to get it uh, arranged. We had it. We almost had it, and then I had to back out uh, because of work. And then uh, and then this happened. So I will uh, one of these days I will get down and and once once the, the restrictions have eased and it's safe, I'll. Uh, I'll go talk to Jack and get his. He's a <clears throat> Jack Ray for the listeners is a uh, another game designer, war gamer. Uh, he was known as Comrade Jack uh, back in the days. He was a full blown full blown communist. Uh, he even wore the little uh, red uh, Mao cap with the with the red star on it. So, but uh, yeah, but if you if you want to know anything about a Russian OB about yes. any particular part of the war, yep. he's the man to go to. Yeah, Jack Ray would know every. He would know. Uh, Name, rank, and serial number. Every every piece of Russian hardware and sort of Russian. He uh, he wrote some books about the Eastern Front. Yeah, he's so you you and Jack Rady and Chris Crawford were in a car driving to Chaosium. Yes, that is hilarious. There's a million jokes that, that spring from that. Uh, yeah, those are the nice. I you. I mean, within especially when when chris set up the um, uh, the the computer conference mm-hmm. uh, environment uh, i went to the his first one was in his home and i actually went to the second one mm-hmm. uh because they started getting and then i went to any or well, the ones after that mm-hmm. quite substantially a, a number after that yeah and they just kept almost doubling each year wow and you know particularly in these current days we understand the concept of doubling yeah right and how what happens there yes yes and uh 
you know, you, you get to this point of just saying, you know, we, we need a bigger hotel or we need a big, you know, how do we actually get everyone in? And once I remember sitting down and we were going to work out, okay, we just have to work out who is a game designer and only game designers can come. Mm-hmm. How so do you do that? If you've ever, especially if there's a bit of alcohol involved, ever <laughs> tried that? <laughs> to decide who's a game designer? Yeah, just okay. You know, um, at, at the end of the at the end of the evening, yeah. we decided that anyone who wants to come uh-huh. is a game designer, <laughs> <laughs> and they can come because um, any other approach right. is so full of error. Especially <laughs> if you've got game designers looking into this, mm-hmm. it's so full of flaws. Yeah. It's just not even funny. It. Yeah. So basically, it's up to it's up to the group to decide. Okay, it just has to be made better. And eventually, uh, with Ernest Adams, for example, uh, he took it into the international sphere of basically selling it off mm-hmm. to an organization whose sole job it is, is to run the international uh, conference every year mm-hmm. uh, at the Moscone Center. And uh, they have done a, a phenomenal job to keep the whole thing rolling along. Wow. Yeah. Uh, when was the last time you went? Quite substantially, uh, qu- quite a long time ago. Oh, yeah. um, it, uh, I think it's around around about around about 2000. Okay. Uh, I know at 1998 because I got the T-shirt, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know I went to others after that. But how long after that? Uh, yeah. Okay. Then it became a little bit too more, a bit too expensive. It became a little. You know, I started to get. I suppose you get a little bit old, mm-hmm. and for what you're getting back from that environment. Yeah. Like early yeah. on. Everything was developing. I was a young program. I wanted to yeah. get to know people. Sure. But but at the end there, I knew everyone I really wanted to know. Yeah. Uh, uh, people were coming to me. I wasn't going to see people, and that right. gets you a bit worried. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there, there really isn't the same desire to, to keep on going. Sure. sure. I, what I would like to do is I would like to go back one day, <laughs> maybe, uh, to meet all the old designers but then you've got to you know chris never goes now mm-hmm. um chris is a bit uh, of the recluse now as i understand yes um and even there i'd love to you know it'd be great if you get you know gordon walton uh, chris crawford jack grady and uh, sid meyer mm-hmm. uh, uh, will wright um mm-hmm. uh, you know these individuals from the past who were yeah. just so great if you like mm-hmm. but get them all in one place where you can actually yeah. uh, really celebrate the past but I don't think that celebration will really ever. There's so many others there too. Just yeah. uh, you know, I'm not mentioning so many, yeah. but uh, you could just uh, you know, it'd be nice to have one more reunion, but that I don't believe would ever happen. Well, maybe, maybe it will. Maybe that needs to be needs to be arranged. I really, I, Roger, I love talking to you about these things. That you, your, your, the the enthusiasm and the sort of affection with which you 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 describe all these events as just, uh, I think, really proof of how good a choice you made in doing, uh, in doing the things you did. And, and, and uh, the real proof, well, that's the real proof. The, the other proof is that you have stuff sitting behind you, such as warlords and carriers at war and all those things that well, so many people have enjoyed, including me. I have to ask you, though, the, the listeners can't see this, but I can. It's over your left shoulder. What are those things you have? It looks like <laughs> magic cards or something. What no, are no, no, no. Warlords, the card game. Oh, the card game. 
So, <laughs> listeners, there is a uh, there is a rack of cards, all very attractively displayed behind Roger, but it's sort of behind him are several, many of his games, but uh, to his left is a rack and all these cards, and I've been looking at them during this entire interview thinking, I'm not sure what, what, what kind of card game did Roger ever design, and I guess I didn't I didn't realize there was a Warlords card game. Yes, there was also a Warlords board game that was never released. The oh. card game was released. Interesting, interesting. Uh, this is called merchandising, <laughs> <laughs> which which SSG was never never really totally successful mm-hmm. at. So, um, and Warlords the the card game was down to end completely. Okay, and that's that's often not a good thing. You uh-huh. you have a what's called a pure design. Mm-hmm. Which goes out, and not one that's been thoroughly tested for fun, <laughs> and other elements which Ian was he wasn't too worried about. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the, uh, he, the, the 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 often dying heroes. Yeah, he had a problem. That, that's, <laughs> there were just his designs. The design. Anyone who was a designer would take this game, and it would be brilliant. Mm-hmm. The the amount of information, the way everything is right. structured. Right. But you need. This is where Steve Faulkner was brilliant. Mm-hmm. His RPG elements, the, the, mm-hmm. the he dreamed these things mm-hmm. which were beyond me. Yeah. Uh, I did the mechanics. Yeah. I handled the AI. Yeah, yeah. But his the dreaming was Steve Faulkner. Yeah, yeah. And and Ian was like his his ability to dream a battle was was amazing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I would then take that and make it work if you like it. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but if you if you just had Ian involved. Mm-hmm. It would have been a a very very different thing, but if you had me involved without any help, mm-hmm. it, uh, it would have been interesting. I think yeah. would be the expression, like the carrier battle game. Without Ian, I I could never have done it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. I could never have carried that out. Sure. Sure. As, as insight and the learning, the amount you learnt from that. Mm-hmm. You're with an an individual. Very much like with Jack Rady or Chris Crawford or any of any uh, Will Wright or any of these other people, the amount you learn is is just in a in an evening of an hour sitting around a table, is just brilliant. Uh, and that that's the side of life that really you know I I could never go you know you, you just can't value that. Yeah. Uh, the the individuals are so powerful in what they and how they can express themselves uh, and what they do know. Yeah. Well, I I I have to say we we, we all miss uh, Ian uh, and uh, but we it's really pardon <laughs> it's his birthday today yes wow today in Australia so today in Australia tomorrow here so this is twenty fifth yeah twenty fifth is twenty fifth of April well uh, then happy happy posthumous birthday to Ian Trout where he we have enjoyed his games and his ideas uh, uh, for decades and we'll probably continue to do so roger i love talking to you thank you so much for doing this for taking so much time um i will be uh talking to you uh i'm sure this is not the last time we'll speak but for the listeners this will be uh the end of our interview and um look for more uh fascinating uh interviews on designer notes uh the podcast thank you roger okay thank you very much appreciate it bye-bye <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>